in a town that's been, who's there to write to anyway? Gotham TV podcast, the unofficial podcast of the upcoming TV show Gotham and the DC Connected Universe. I'm your host, John. And I'm your other host, Derek. Uh, welcome. In episode 14 of Gotham TV podcast, we will be taking a look at the news. We'll be also then finishing off our series on Gotham Central. That will be covering the final issues of Gotham Central and will be our part five review. And we'll be looking further into the recent preview, The Legend Reborn, that was released for the iTunes season pass and on YouTube. And now on to the news. Not a huge amount of news this week, unfortunately. Um... We do know, again, to confirm, we're definitely getting Gotham on Channel 5 this autumn. Uh, Still don't have a confirmed date from them. Uh, One piece of news that we did pick up is that kind of a bad piece of news. We definitely aren't getting Gotham in Ireland on TV3. Uh, They've released their schedule for the autumn, uh, and unfortunately they haven't uh, haven't picked up the rights to Gotham. Yeah, we couldn't spot that at all, could we, on the schedule? Yeah, yeah, so uh, if they do have it... They're keeping it quiet, and it, prob- it definitely won't be broadcast until 2015. So we're still holding out hope and crossing fingers for uh, for RT2. That's the other next best bet for the broadcaster for Gotham in Ireland would be RT2, given their previous information up on their website. Yeah, yeah. So um, so as we mentioned last week, uh, last time, they have released their schedule for RT1. RT2 will release their schedule slightly later. Um, we're expecting probably confirmation in the next week or so of, of the programming that's on RT2. There's no reason why they won't be releasing it um, within the next couple of weeks. So hopefully they'll release it and confirm that we'll get broadcast on 23rd of September. That's what we're hoping on. So other than that, um, we just want to say thanks firstly to um, to... Sean Lum, uh, our friend on Twitter, and uh, Batmanophilia, also a friend on Twitter, yeah. uh, for pointing out a couple couple of articles that uh, that have come out in the last couple of weeks. Um, I think these are kind of follow-up articles to uh, Comic-Con and to the activity that was happening in the U.S. with uh, with uh, the Critics Association, um, where a lot of the, a lot of the uh, major press are now getting some kind of stories, main stories about, about Gotham. So... Yeah, it's building towards the release um, dates and that this autumn. Mm-hmm. I think certainly for Sci-Fi Now magazine and SFX magazines, it kind of does suggest that these will be coming in autumn. Mm-hmm. Uh, to have these big features coming out on the magazines um, that are published and released in the UK and in Ireland, both digitally and obviously in hard copy. So it's ramping up that PR and the excitement for Gotham, it really is starting to sort of build and get people into the show and give them some snippets because unlike um, ourselves, people may not have obviously been um, looking, talking, thinking, living, breathing (laughs) the show uh, since the end of February. So some of the stuff in there may appear old hat if you've been following the show and the background and the lead up and 
all San Diego Comic-Con and all that kind of stuff. But for for many people, it's going to be new stuff. And I think even with that, there were some new aspects to these these articles that were published. Yeah, absolutely. So I know a lot of our listeners obviously have been with us since, uh, since you know, right at the start. I've been listening to a lot of the a lot of the episodes. Not going to find a huge amount in the SFX article that we haven't talked about on, on our podcasts, but uh, worth picking up. It's a short little piece. Um, the Sci-Fi Now one that, uh, that Sean Lunn and that Manfilia pointed us to uh, is a cover article and has it's kind of, it, the lead into a whole section about the superhero yeah. TV shows and superhero movies that are coming up. Really interesting kind of set of articles, but particularly the the piece about Gotham. There's a couple of a couple of pieces revealed in there. Uh, one of the big pieces that I that I found really interesting was about David Masseuse and his casting as uh, as Bruce Wayne. That essentially Bruno Heller knew that he wanted a Bruce Wayne character. He knew that he wanted to kick off the show with with Bruce Wayne, but when he cast Evan Masseuse and with his experience on Touch, as we talked about before, the TV show that lasted for two seasons, um, that he found an actor that really can embody quite adult themes. Um, yeah, he basically felt that we can actually explore the younger Bruce Wayne much more fully um, from a psychological point of view, from a maybe slash disturbed point of view, um, much more thoroughly with the actor... David Masseuse uh, being cast. And so that was one of the interesting points from the article was that they have actually included more footage, dialogue, and, and in, in a sense, screen time for the young Bruce Wayne because of the casting of David Masseuse. Uh, so that was really interesting. I think the other thing that the Sci-Fi Now article explored a bit more fully, um, it was mentioned in SFX. Mm-hmm. But it was this idea that the show was going to explore vigilantes. And actually, when we read this in SFX, we kind of thought, well, what does that mean? Does that mean um, that they're going to look at other caped heroes or vigilantes, that type of thing? We weren't entirely sure. And we were kind of thinking, does this mean that Batgirl is going to pop up? Like, there had been suggestions that might happen. So we were kind of slightly concerned, though, that, this would be a bit odd, but yeah, yeah. Um, Sci-Fi now managed to clarify that, didn't they? Yeah, absolutely. They, they've essentially said that there may be some people that um, that some of the some of the villain characters will look up to and kind of get some lessons from them and take them and then use them to to kind of help them on their path to being a villain. And there's some characters that Bruce will take learnings from, and they could be other vigilantes. There could be other people that are taking the law into their own hands very much is the is the concept of it that's much more again much more logical than the idea of of batman seeing another caped crusader in the city exactly take putting on a cape putting on a bat mask and going well i'm going to do exactly what he does it seems much more logical when I, when i read it in the in the sci-fi now article um, and i'm very glad i read the sci-fi now, sci-fi now article i was uh, when i read the sfx one I definitely was kind of going, uh-oh, they're taking a bad turn here. <laughs> uh, but no, I think I think the clarification that I saw in Sci-Fi Now is, is definitely helpful. Totally understand if you think about the way, I, the way I have it in my head, if you think about the whole relationship between Penguin and Fish Mooney as it's being set out right now, that's exactly what Bruno Heller was actually talking about. He's talking about a character like Penguin being a young character, being around a lot of criminality and going, ooh, I like what she did in Fish Mooney. And I like what other characters did, and I'm going to take that on board and do it better than they did it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, as well, that idea that it's not from the pavement that he licked it to Absolutely. Bruce Wayne. That... <laughs> Taking my family motto. Exactly. <laughs> that it was, you know, there are some 
suggestions in this world leading up whilst he's impressionable, whilst he's grieving for the loss of his his parents, and as he moves, you know, from a, a, a young boy into a teenager and eventually into adulthood, that Bruce Wayne is learning and being influenced by his environment and his surroundings, which would obviously as well include Alfred and Jim Gordon, but also potential vigilantes. Yeah, absolutely. And I know we'll talk a, talk a lot more about some of the stuff that we've learned in The Legend Reborn when we're uh, the trailer when we're talking about that later on. Uh, one other cool thing I will I will mention about the Sci-Fi Now article, I do like their uh, their preview picture for Gotham, which is essentially a, a Batman comic book cover with Jim Gordon and Harvey Bullock in there, um, saying that they're the heroes that Gotham deserves, which I like because it's a, a phrase taken from uh, Dark Knight, which we spoke about a couple episodes ago. Um, but I like the fact that they put Harvey Bullock as a hero that Gotham deserves. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? We don't know. Yet. The only issue is that the actual magazine doesn't cost twenty cents. <laughs> um, but other than that, it's yeah, it's great. It's, like, it's like a really the, good. Like the picture is really good. Uh, really good image. Um, not a huge amount of other news. Anything else? So I suppose the the iTunes Pass that John mentioned in the in the intro. Um, yeah, that season pass is now available on iTunes for. The series Gotham. Yep, for um, for US and, and Canadian listeners, if you were if you're not sure how you're going to be watching the show on uh, on your local TV station, if you don't have it uh, have confirmation, you can go and buy it on iTunes for twenty nine dollars ninety nine in America, and I think it's thirty nine ninety nine Canadian dollars. Yeah, it's a bit more expensive don't, potentially. Yeah, don't quote me on that. It might be forty nine ninety nine in Canadian dollars. I don't know the conversion rate, unfortunately, but uh, but I did see it up there, so. If you're if you can't if you want to get your fix and want to make sure that you always have your your episodes ready for you, iTunes is a good way to go for that. Um, that's where they have the the preview. I believe they have an onset preview as well up there, uh, which we can't see obviously being behind the uh, the uh, the paywall in iTunes, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but let us know what you think. Um, if you if you get to see it and there's something that we've missed out, let us know what you think. Um, so I think we can move on to some feedback that we got. Yeah, um, yeah, we held we held a bit of feedback back for a couple of weeks. Um, it was a conversation that we had with with another one of our friends on Twitter, Elizabeth, who was asking some questions about about the upcoming show, but also connecting it to Gotham Central. And I think now that we've gone past a lot of the arcs in Gotham Central at this stage, uh, I think it's probably a good time to talk about it now. I suppose. Yeah. So Elizabeth basically asks us any idea who holds the rights to Harvey Dent's uh, usage within the the TV show. I know it's sticky if they try to use Two-Face, but Harvey, a case could be made for bringing him in with Moroni now that he's on board. And this would set it up nicely for a Montoya arc. No? Question mark. Mm -hmm. And this basically comes from, certainly within Gotham Central, from what we've been reviewing, that Harvey Dent and Rene Montoya have a history, a backstory to themselves. I think, first off, there should be no issue with the rights um, to Harvey Dent and him appearing in Gotham, if the writers and the showrunners wish to do that. Yeah, I suppose, as we've mentioned a couple of times on, on the podcast anyway, um, and we've mentioned we mentioned back to, to Elizabeth at the time, that all the rights of all the DC characters are owned by Warner Brothers DC. It's, it's one company. It's not like Marvel. There's no... No problems because Christopher Nolan used particular characters in his movie or because particular characters are used in the animated series or anything like that. They can use whatever characters they want to. 
Yeah, particularly if it's right for the story. So in that sense, the flexibility available to Warner Brothers and DC is is amazing yeah. in comparison to, say, Marvel, where they are having, and unfortunately are stuck in that position, where oh, we can't call them mutants, for example, and that type of thing. That's a shame, I think, for Marvel, yeah. personally. But um, they're, they're successful, though. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But for DC... Because, and Warner Brothers, they don't really have that same problem. They can utilize that. And, and hence why in Arrow, for example, they had Harley Quinn pop mm. up very briefly, but they yeah. could do that. And they could they could tease that, that in a really light way, in a real small segment, like incredibly small, yeah, yeah. because there is no issue there. So there should be no issue to Harvey Dent being used if they so wished to. Absolutely, and I think I think that's piece that we kind of talked about. Really, is just you know they can they can do it if it if it makes sense. There's a really good, interesting relationship. If you've heard our podcasts on uh, on Gotham Central, there's a really interesting dynamic between Harvey Dent and Lenny Montoya, particularly. Uh, we now know since this since this original discussion that we had, we now know that Harvey Dent will probably feature in the show and will be around the same age as Jim Gordon in the show. I think the real thing that they've got to be careful of is. There's going to be backlash from fans. Obviously, we know that there already is backlash from just the title of the show and the fact there's no Batman in it. But some of the some of this kind of stuff, we've got such a central character to the Batman universe as Harvey Dent. Now that Christopher Nolan took him and turned him into this um, contemporary of Bruce Wayne, the backlash now is going to be well, we can't make him 15 years older than Bruce Wayne um, if you put him in the show. So they absolutely can use him, and I hope they do. It's a, you know it's a really interesting character. I think the issue would be creating Two-Face too early. Potentially, yeah. I think. Potentially. Um, that's not to say that they can't. And I think Elizabeth uh, also kind of makes the point that they could actually do this, that there could be some clash with Moroni like um, in The Dark Knight. But then Two-Face would almost have to go then into the periphery mm-hmm. um, and, and not really be seen potentially. Yeah. It, and that may work, it might not do. I think for me, you could have Harvey Dent in this world. Two-Face, if he were to be created in this world, should be created towards the end of the run, I think, of hopefully the 10th season of this show. <laughs> if if you create him too early, I think that's a problem with the timeline because then there's this guy running around, but alternatively, they could simply just lock him up in Arkham. Yeah. He could be arrested, locked up in Arkham. Um, so we we don't really know, but certainly it sounds to me it would be useful. It's definitely plausible. I'd, li- plausible. I'd, I'd like to see Harvey Dent as the DA. I'd like to see him working as a working in within the system to have some kind of relationships with the characters before he becomes Two-Face. The whole point in The Dark Knight that they bring in is that he was the White Knight of Gotham. He was the one that was uh, that everybody looked up to. You have time to create that over seasons. Uh, you have time to create that over years of of the show like this. Much before you have to do the turn him into Two Face, you have time to corrupt his character uh, in some sense. And that's what the show seems to be all about. It's about corrupting those characters from their beginnings to uh, when they become the characters fully formed. But you're probably not going to see the fully formed version of the characters in the TV show. That's kind of what they're saying. Yeah, I mean, it could be that his call to arms is the murder of Thomas and Martha Wayne. And that's what makes him take up um, and run for DA, for example. And maybe then, actually what you see is something that 
has been hinted about with regards to Harvey Bullock, which is this slow kind of corruption um, and um, just this whittling away of the base character. But as opposed to Harvey Bullock, who maybe hits the bottle or maybe just deals with it and is kind of jaded, this tips an ethically and morally sort of all-encompassing person who thinks that the law is the be-all and end-all and should always be right, that this conflict tips him to a madness or something that affects him into turning into two things. Yes, yeah, perhaps, perhaps, absolutely. I think part of the question, part of the uh, part of the discussion from uh, Elizabeth really is is about the Rene Montoya and Harvey Dent relationship. I think that's part of her question. That's that's quite a central piece of of Gotham Central co- comics that we're reading, and I know Elizabeth's read them as well. Um, and I'd love to see that play out. I'd love to see at least a portion of that where they have some form of relationship where harvey has a hold over her in some sense i think that's quite an interesting little piece to play with so um so hopefully you never know elizabeth and thanks for the feedback uh d- delighted to hear it yeah it's, i think uh, it would be a great dynamic on on the show um a Rene montoya and harvey dent dynamic yeah. it would be great Absolutely. definitely so thanks very much for the feedback excellent and if you guys want to get us to, to send any kind of feedback in you can get us on twitter you can get us on facebook uh, Gotham TV Podcast in both places. You can also email us at gothamtvpodcast at gmail.com. We accept feedback from anywhere you, you want to send it in to us. Uh, <laughs> we're getting close to the getting close to the show launch. Uh, one of the kind of pieces I want to throw out to uh, to our listeners um, is really just uh, how you think the format of the show is. Um, you know, we're coming up to the show starting. We want to get some feedback on our opening music, for example, and how the structure of the show is going with the news. Uh, and with uh-huh. and with the actual show review itself, let us know what you think. Um, you know, we're we're going to be going into doing a weekly podcast uh, in hopefully a couple of weeks' time. So I would love to get some feedback on what you think. Um, yeah, just email us at the usual address. So we've had a little technical snafu. We had uh, recorded our uh, our coverage of the Legend Reborn preview, and unfortunately we've lost it. But we're going to record it again um, and talk about it. Um, it's one more thing that we just want to cover before we go into the Gotham Central review, our final one, um, which is a trailer that was released or a preview that was released by Fox uh, about Gotham, um, coming up to the last couple of weeks before Gotham's released on uh, on Fox in the US. Uh, they released a full preview which is 21 minutes long uh, it's got four parts to it split into split separately on youtube uh, but you can also see it on itunes if you buy your season pass they give you an additional behind the scenes uh, preview on there uh, but myself and john just wanted to give you some impressions on it i think there's going to be some spoilers particularly for the first episode of the show um we've talked about a lot of these things in the past on our previous episodes but there's some new stuff that's come into come into this footage um, so if you want to skip it uh, and go on to the Gotham Central Part 5 review, we think it's going to be about 10 to 15 minutes probably. So just skip ahead and we'll uh, we'll talk to you on the other side. So John, what's, uh, what do these uh, encompass? Yeah, so it's a four-part um, preview special entitled The Legend Reborn. Part 1 is entitled Mythical Beginnings. Part 2, A City on the Edge. Part 3, Behind the Shadows. And Part 4, Heroes and Villains. And... This covers most of the cast in film footage or in interview. Mm-hmm. It covers the showrunners, Bruno Heller and Danny Cannon, but it expands that to people behind the design and the look, visual effects and special effects. Yeah. And importantly, I think this is the first time we really get to hear um, Jeff Johns, the 
creative guy behind DC Entertainment and mm-hmm. DC Comics. Give his views, impressions, and thoughts on elements of Gotham as well. Yeah, there's very much the feeling that if, if Bruno Heller uh, has some questions about the DC Universe and characters he can use, that he goes and talks to Jeff Johns, who's just got this encyclopedic knowledge about all of the characters that are involved, knows the history of them all, knows the future of them all, and knows what's happening. So, yeah. so yeah, so it's very much using his uh, his knowledge to, to kind of bolster the show and turn it much more into the DC Universe than Bruno Heller might, ne- might necessarily have done. Yeah, he's a, he's a great frame of reference for anyone involved in bringing... DC comics or DC characters to life and I think that's evident as well by his involvement in The Flash and Arrow uh, and most likely Constantine yeah. all these four TV shows coming out this this autumn mm-hmm. what are some of the few things then that we saw that were new here and there are potentially four new characters that we saw there was a lady in what appeared to be a club playing a guitar, it could be Fish Mooney's club and she had a, a an eye mask on, a bit like you kind of see in Arrow, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's a suggestion here that this could be the magpie. There's speculation that she's the magpie, yeah. who is a fairly minor character, um, also known as Margaret Pye. <laughs> yeah, she's she's so minor. She's not even in our our DC encyclopedia of uh, of the of all the comic book characters. So I presume she's either relatively new or uh, or has only had very small parts in uh, in TV shows and animated series, perhaps. But yeah, a lot of people are speculating that she's uh, that she is the character Magpie. It's a one it's one quick scene, isn't it? It's only like a yeah, very uh, quick. It, it's a, a series of quick flashes, and it kind of introduces very quick images of four new characters in relation to this potential character magpie the important thing to note is that she is a jewel thief uh, like the bird itself she likes likes shiny sparkly stuff and this might play well with the young selena kyle it could be her mentor or someone who she follows and gets her ideas of becoming a a thief yeah yeah absolutely uh, the look also reminds me a little bit of daryl hannah from uh, from blade runner the kind of the kind of mask across the face and just the, the makeup that she's wearing looks very like that kind of blade runner style which uh which kind of plays into something they say a little bit later on about the kind of style of the show and the style of new york taking stuff from blade runner taking stuff from that futuristic but past kind of absolutely kind of look but there's some other characters that are that are released yeah, so it's, it's about, um, what's it six minutes 20 if you're looking at the trailers themselves about six six minutes 20 into the uh first first trip. part yeah of, of the special preview yeah one of the other ones is someone who we've mentioned before and this is oswald cobblepot's mother mm-hmm. who's played here by carol kane and we get a first full image uh, of her as Gertrude Cappleput. And mm-hmm. um, so that's really good. And she looks immensely sort of a faded glory type of thing, a <laughs> faded regalness about her and um, very white hair. Okay. Almost looks like she's made of dust, very yeah. dusty, like she's in a library in a real sort of old house, sort of old, old money, I suppose, is right. how I would describe it, um, as opposed to some new money elements that we've we will talk about in a in a moment. Yeah, but she looks like something that's been taken directly from Beetlejuice, one of the uh, a Tim Burton film. Anyway, she looks like just a weird character, just from the quick image that we've seen of her. But uh, but I do like the, like the look. And then we have two more characters that are shown very quickly. One is Frank Worley, who um, was in Pulp Fiction mm-hmm. and also in the Doors films. And 
there's the suggestion here that he's in a an evidence room or maybe a laboratory store, but there's a lot of shelves about. You can't quite tell what's on them. Yeah. But there's a suggestion here that he could be a Mr. Freeze character or Hugo Strange, mm. Dr. Hugo Strange, um, that's been hinted at uh, within for the series. Yeah, I think I think once once they put a name to a couple of the characters that they wanted to have on the show and then showed an actor like Frank Wally, he's quite recognisable. He may yeah. not be in, in a lot of films, but he's definitely recognisable from something like Pulp Fiction. Uh, once they show him, people start instantly doing those connections. The, the Hugo Strange character is definitely going to be in the show. We know that Arkham Asylum is going to appear. We know that Hugo Strange has quite a large involvement with Arkham. Um, so it's quite possible, but... We don't know yet. There's no uh, no other confirmation about him at all. No. And then finally, there's an older chap, an older man, who is pointing a gun in a very indistinguishable kind of area. It could be the warehouse from sort of that butcher scene that mm-hmm. we've seen in the trailers previously. Or it could be at Arkham Asylum. Yeah. We simply don't know. There's not enough context, I don't think, yeah. to this man who's pointing a gun. But again, there has been the suggestion that he could be a Mr. Freeze or a Hugo Strange yeah. character as well. Only time will tell in the case of, of these two characters who they might be, along with the potential magpie. Yeah, yeah. Um, not a huge amount else in the first preview. There is a, a, quite, quite a good bit between uh, James Gordon and Harvey Bullock that we haven't seen in the past, which I thought was quite interesting. Essentially talking about, a bit about Harvey Bullock's character, that he expects little of the city of Gotham. He's kind of been worn down over time. He, had, he used to be a good guy, and now it's been worn down because of the dealings that he's had. Uh, definitely shows some relationship between himself and Fish Mooney. Um, definitely, Which yeah. kind of confirms that I think we'd seen the scene from another angle in previous trailers, and now you see that they're very close. They know each other very well. I think we really get a lot of confirmation in the first part of this preview mm. that Gotham is going to look at the origins of these supervillains, and that the jump-off point is this huge what-if that what if rookie detective Jim Gordon investigated the murder of Thomas and Martha Wayne and that everything kind of flows from there, that there is Ben McKenzie saying, you know, he's playing this iconic law enforcement character in Jim Gordon and he's a bit daunted, a little bit scared of it, but he's really thrilled doing it and he's really enjoying putting his own stamp on that so there's a lot of confirmation from from different trailers and little sneak peeks from san diego comic-con and the television critics association nights that kind of all confirm what we've previously heard which which is good um i think one of the really interesting things is jada pinkett smith actually yeah in this as well yeah i really love this clip uh just gonna play it now boy Sorry. If you let this hair go frizzy, you will be. Just, just really funny. I love the, uh, I love the reaction to, to Oswald Cobblepot. Really good. Yeah, she seems to be really enjoying playing this character, this new character for the show, Fish Mooney. Um, from her interviews, from the fact that she carries a baseball bat around San Diego <laughs> Comic Con, to, to just the, the little sneak peeks that we're getting of her character. She's really enjoying it. And I love what she said where this is a playground for her shadow, that maybe she's not done many villains, psychopaths mm-hmm. before, and she's really enjoying sort of exploring that darker element um, in her acting. So yeah. that's really, really good to, to hear and to see in this. Mm-hmm. I think one of the other aspects that we get from part two as well is confirmation 
big confirmation of the major crimes unit, the MCU, in the police department. Yeah, and unfortunately, they've kind of pulled down one of our theories, uh, <laughs> which we which we had said in the past that the major crimes unit is formed up of Jim Gordon, Harvey Bullock, uh, Detective Renan Montoya, Detective Christmas Allen, and also uh, Edward Nigma. And they're actually all members of the GCPD. Uh, we know that for a fact now. Um, but we know that Rene Montoya and uh, Crispus Allen are members of the Major Crimes Unit. Jim Gordon and Harvey Bullock are actually members of the Homicide Division within the GCPD. And, and that makes sense given yeah. that they're investigating Thomas and Martha's murder. Absolutely. And then we have Edward Nigma will be within the crime scene investigative unit as yeah. well more the forensics so they're not all together within the gcpd and this might show some of the rivalries between these different units we certainly get that flavor from harvey bullock's introduction of rennie montoya and crispus allen in this little scene in, in the second part of this preview well 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 if it isn't montoya and allen major crimes unit any leads just getting started i'll be straight you want us to take it off your hands? Come on, Bullock. You know you're scared of this case. Yeah, and it just seems it seems, seems really good. I love the attitude of uh, of Christmas Allen. It's really funny. Uh, <laughs> it's just uh, you fear this. Uh, give us give us the case. It's really good. So another character introduced in in uh, part two. We haven't really seen much of uh, of Aaron Richards as uh, as Barbara Keane. Um, quite a big quite a big character, really. It's it's Jim's kind of anchor uh, in the city of Gotham. He's moved to Gotham directly after. Coming back from the military, Barbara Keane is his fiance in the show. We know that. Um, we now it's now kind of confirmed that she's part of the upper uh, upper echelon, I suppose, or the upper class of Gotham, which is something we definitely haven't seen in any of the previews. All we've seen really has been the police department and the criminality. But Bruce Wayne is obviously part of the upper echelon. I know he's a kid in this in this film, um, but there's always been that side of Gotham shown in all the previous films and all the comic books. Um, there's always been the upper echelon of society, and now we know that. Barbara Keane is part of that. so And is our way into that whole society in Gotham. Exactly, exactly. Uh, there's also a great little scene between Rena Montoya and, uh, and Barbara Keane, where she essentially is trying to protect Barbara from who she thinks Jim Gordon might be. She thinks he could also be another corrupt cop. And says there is a past history between the two of them, kind of confirming that, uh, that Rena Montoya character is um, similar to the character that we've seen in Gotham Central. So if you've heard any of our past podcasts, you know our our extreme like of uh, of Rena Montoya, uh, and you know that uh, you know a lot about this character. And I think it's pretty much confirmation that she's the character we believe she was. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing to see, and it can only bode well if they even utilize a small fraction of what was in the Gotham Central comic series Absolutely. for Rena Montoya, and indeed Crispus Allen, who again is another great uh, character that developed in that comic series mm -hmm. i think as well we also do get to see the young bruce wayne more mm -hmm. certainly in a disturbed way we see him trying to conquer his fear by standing on the top of wayne manor to overcome potentially his fear of heights here but we also then see him doing i suppose self-harm by yeah. holding his hand above a candle and you can see the burns on on his palm and this also allows us to see um some more then of Sean Pertwee as as Alfred. 
one of the aspects of him we see here is him arriving at the murder scene to mm-hmm. obviously collect and comfort the young Bruce Wayne. Yeah. Uh, we also see a bit of interplay between him and Jim Gordon. Um, yeah. He is not happy with Jim Gordon trying to give advice to his young charge at all. I love that. One little scene, one little line, which shows just that he is not happy. He's like, do you, do you think I haven't told him that this isn't good for him? You know, uh, very good. I'm really, really intrigued to see how the interaction between those two characters who are former, both former military, um, how they are trying to control Bruce and trying to guide Bruce through his life now that he's lost his parents. And I think Dan, yeah, exactly. And I think Danny Cannon also indicates this relationship between Alfred and Bruce Wayne is kind of slightly peculiar. He's his guardian, but he's also his butler, his his servant in Mm -hmm. a sense. And so... It's to see how Alfred guides him to being a, a a teenager, a young man, a young adult, which again is really interesting. Um, yeah, one of the pieces that came out during this preview is very much that that uh, Bruno Heller said that originally Bruce Wayne character was supposed to be kind of sidelined. Uh, he's a young actor; uh, they didn't want to f- focus the show on him. But after the casting of David Masseuse, uh, who who was in touch for two seasons after his casting, and um, they pretty much said he's a great actor; they can actually take. A lot of storylines that they probably wouldn't have given to another young actor uh, and give them to David Masseuse and he can play them up. Um, so we're actually probably going to see a lot more of Bruce Wayne than they'd originally planned and, and the, than mm-hmm. they'd originally shared back in September when they started production on the show. And then I think finally one of the other great things we get from part two is Jeff Johns talking about this power vacuum being created and the tension. So he really focuses on this idea of tension at all levels and across the city of Gotham. And he talks about tensions between the Falcone and Maroni crime gangs, between Fish and the cops and the GCPD, between members of the MCU, such as Montoya and Christopher Allen, and the Homicide Division, Jim Gordon and Harvey Bullock. Mm-hmm. So this will be really interesting to see. And I mean... There's even more tensions there that we know with regards to Fish Mooney and potentially with Oswald Cobblepot as well. Yeah. So this is a really great dramatic interplay, I think, that will be occurring within the show. Or that's my idea anyway. Yeah. Um, and I'm kind of interested in this idea that is also put out there about the split between the Moroni and the Falcone families, the big crime families. Because you get this sense from Fish Mooney that they're they're weakened, they're in a kind of enfeebled state as crime overlords or mobster bosses, um, and that this is her chance to to come in and take over. But also whether this split between these two big crime families is related in part to the murder of the Waynes. I kind of suspect it might be. Yeah, but it'll yeah. be interesting to see. Absolutely, I do. I have to say. The one thing about this preview, I, I feel that it was something that's meant for the DVD or Blu-ray uh, and has been turned into a preview uh, shot for the for the show. Um, I think it does give a lot away, particularly about the first episode of the show. But uh, but hopefully, if you if you don't want to be spoiled by that, you've skipped on ahead. <laughs> so really, the next part that's uh, that's in there is about the making of the show. Uh, some of the some of the some of the pieces that have gone into making. Uh, New York, Gotham, and making Gotham New York, I suppose. Um, a lot of the stuff that's about uh, Danny Cannon and how he wanted to do uh, helicopter footage himself of the city and uh, and use that as their basic um, their basic setup for the show and basic setup for the visual effects. He didn't want to take something of, I'm sure, the millions of pieces of footage that have been shot of New York 
through uh, by helicopter. He wanted to actually record his own piece and then use visual effects on top of that to kind of enhance it. But they absolutely say that New York plays a huge part in the show and that, uh, that, that New York, without New York and without the city itself, Gotham would be a very different place. Yeah, most definitely one of the big characters of this show has been cast in New York City. Mm-hmm. This idea that Gotham is New York City and New York City is Gotham. You kind of get this thread running through from Danny Cannon and Bruno Heller that they were using the New York City um, from the 1970s as a template for Gotham, this city that is vibrant, anarchic, crowded, and just getting crazier and crazier. They reference, as Derek had mentioned previously, this kind of film noir, classic film noir, such as Blade Runner, to get that kind of dark tone Hmm. but also then films of Sidney LeMay and William Freakin are also referenced you know this idea of increasing numbers of cops on the on the streets to deal with disobedience Mm -hmm. and disorder the corruption throughout public life and then also this anarchic look from graffiti gothic towers gargoyles all this and um, being used by visual effects it's kind of interesting i think it was doug craner uh, one of the designers are uh, for the show talking that danny cannon likes to shoot in camera this idea that it's the real shot going through and visual effects are placed within that so you look like you're moving through gothic towers and, and so on and um, so that's really interesting and then even the cast, uh, Ben McKenzie and Robin Lord Taylor, have said that the vibrancy of the city is infusing their performance and is influencing the production as well. So that's really interesting to hear. Yeah, um, and not, not a huge amount else really that that jumped out to me from from it. I think the the creation of the set for the Gotham City precinct is pretty cool. That's huge. It's yeah, what, it's two stories tall. Uh, took ten weeks to build, and I think it looks like something directly out of Gotham Central. It's it's exactly the kind of central point for those comics it looks amazing um, and looks exactly like the, what I had in my head um, they've, they've released one shot I think of of, uh, of it outside of the, the preview and I've had a look at it and there's loads of little details and little uh, little easter eggs for uh, for us to to pour over when we start seeing the show yeah it's a really great looking set huge investment and I suppose in a sense that shows the intention and all of the showrunners yeah. to build such a a great looking set and again it links into this notion that has been talked about by Bruno Heller and Danny Cannon about giving Gotham this timeless quality that on the one hand yes there, there may be cell phones but the cars look like they're from the 70s yeah. and some of the buildings look like they're from sort of 1930s gothic mm-hmm. sort of skyscrapers so it's of its time but but also timeless as well. It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, really, really, really good. And I think, uh, I think it's something that's not going to really sit side by side with Arrow or with Flash. It's something that's not going to be a contemporary city of those two. It looks like it could be something that happened twenty years ago, or something that happens right now in a city that hasn't uh, that hasn't invested a lot of money in updating its buildings or updating its. Uh, updating its setting i suppose but yeah quite interesting not a huge amount from part four i think it's i think part four was actually something that we talked about in the past it's um it was just slightly recut for for this for this yeah. full preview uh, but not a huge amount from that is there anything else that you that jumped out from for you no i think they were the main elements for me actually there was one line one of the interesting things i i thought was jada pinkett smith calling uh 
Jim Gordon, the White Knight of Gotham, which I thought was quite quite interesting, given that the last person that was given that title was was uh, Harvey Dent in The Dark Knight, and we all know what happened to him. Um, is exactly. Jim Gordon on a similar path or on a similar precipice? Will he take the same kind of path as as Harvey Dent did, or not? Well, hopefully not. <laughs> no, I mean, I think we can all, we can definitely say that he won't. And I think what we'll we will be looking at is why he chose to stay that side of the line and mm. not descend into madness uh, and vengefulness. And yeah. um, that he still wanted to protect the citizens and the people of Gotham uh, and seek a better city. And for... be the last good man in Gotham, as you said. Exactly. So... But I think it's um, it's a really good preview. Um, and so we would definitely say check it out, but just be careful in case you feel it, it It maybe has too many spoilers for you for the first episode. But it's a great little addition to all the stuff that's been released by um, Fox and by Gotham. Yeah. And with that, on to our Gotham Central review. I'm going to use the uh, Harvey Bullock uh, quote as the intro to Gotham Central because those two characters, Rena Montoya and Christmas Allen, play a very large part in our Part 5 Gotham Central review. Well, 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 if it isn't Montoya and Allen... Major crimes unit. Any leads? Just getting started. I'll be straight. You want us to take it off your hands? Come on, Bullock. You know you're scared of this case. This is the part five Gotham Central review. And this will cover issues 28 through to the final issue, issue 40. And it's going to cover five main story arcs. Uh, Keystone Cops, Nature, Dead Robin, Sunday Bloody Sunday, and Corrigan Part 2. And the main beats of these are three big three and four issue parts in Keystone Cops, Dead Robin and Corrigan Part 2, and single issue arcs in Nature and Sunday, Bloody Sunday. Essentially, we said last week that unfortunately we're kind of running out of time before Gotham, the TV show, starts. Um, we're going to be covering a lot more issues in this uh, in this than we've covered before. And so I hope you guys are keeping up and uh, hopefully you've finished, uh, you've finished reading your Gotham Central books. Um, we will be spoiling everything as we go through these. There's quite a lot of spoilers for uh, for Gotham, so it's good if you've read up this far. These are excellent issues, really. Uh, really enjoyed yeah, reading yeah. through these and some really emotional stuff that's happening with the characters that we're going to be going to be watching on Gotham uh, and some really good storylines overall. Yeah, it's a really um, fitting finale, I think, uh, leading up to the final story arc, Corrigan Part 2, which has a real emotional weight to it, I think. Even more so, I think, than Half a Life uh, because of the people involved. So I guess why don't we start at the beginning and start off with Keystone Cops. Keystone Cops, this encompasses Gotham Central issues 28 to 31. This is written by Greg Rucker. In this story, a officer is transformed into a burnt monster after an accident involving a underground chemistry lab where he's rescuing two children in Montoya's old neighbourhood. Mm-hmm. The laboratory is an old Flash villain, Dr. Alchemy, and this results in Montoya and Crispus Allen heading off to Keystone City to investigate Dr. Alchemy to help save the injured and mutating cop. Yeah, yeah, that's really a really interesting idea for, for a storyline, I must say. Um, I love the crossover. The crossover is probably the most, the, probably the biggest crossover that they've done to date in Gotham Central. Um, mm-hmm. Having a crossover between the, the Keystone uh, Police Department and the Gotham City PD, which I love. We've talked about before, can we have crossovers in the TV show? And I love this idea where it's 
not minor characters of of uh, of another city, but it is it's not the main hero or the main villain in the city crossing over. It's quite a small villain in Doctor Alchemy and the cops of one city meeting the cops of another city, which is quite interesting. I like that. Um, but going back to the start, I suppose of the of the issue itself. Uh, so this kicks off in Rene Montoya's old neighborhood. Kicks off, I think. I think about the fourth panel. You see, it's uh, it's outside. Two kids who are standing outside um, the grocery store of Montoya's father. Yeah, Hernando. Yeah, it's all in that neighborhood, and essentially, two children get bullied, get picked on, and then get chased down. The sister of the kid um, essentially runs to get help from two police officers. This is Officer Kelly mm-hmm. and uh, another officer, Officer Don. So they go down into this um, basement, and the kid that was getting picked on. They find him up on a counter and the other kid named Jesus stuck to the floor in some kind of chemical. And they don't quite know what it is. Mm. Officer Kelly gets there first and manages to prise uh, the kid out of this kind of gluey mixture on the on the floor. And essentially tells Jesus, you know, jump. And as he jumps uh, towards Officer Kelly, he knocks over another chemical uh, in, in a jar, mm. in, a, in a flask which spills and this entire basement erupts into flame, but not the flames of a, a regular fire. This is like, a there's no heat coming from the fire. There's no smoke. There's no um, fire rising up the walls and onto the ceiling. It's just the officer gets fried, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Officer Kelly. Yeah, it's really, really kind of a sad moment in a way. Like it's, it's the opening of the storyline. It's, it's Kelly um, going in and being the hero cop. You know, he's a hero cop on the beat, um, which we haven't seen much of in the series of, of Gotham Central. Generally, the cops on the beat are looked at as, as kind of um, the poorer relations to the major crimes. You know, they're generally quite corrupt in a lot of, a lot of uh, storylines. This is a good cop who's gone to do his duties. Tried to save. I think it's Miguel actually that he's tried to save from the, the bully. Um, saves both of them and ends off getting injured himself. And the rest of the story is as these chemicals start to take hold on him, he's not killed, he's fried. He doesn't die, though, and he starts to mutate. Yeah, I mean, just quickly going back as well to this, we know all these rivalries between different elements of the GCPD, mm. and it's kind of the first instance of the patrol officers that you kind of get. Yeah. But you get this sense, again, that they are the poor relation to the MCU, mm-hmm. or to any other unit. Um, but there is that moment where Montoya and some of Officer Kelly's colleagues, the the, the patrol slobs, I think they're called at one point, um, were they want to get justice for Officer Kelly um, because of this accident and essentially what comes to be a crime mm. and because he's such a good cop and they ask you know are we on the same page and montoya delivers a really good line and says um we're on the same sentence you know i'll help hold him down when we find him yeah. you know and um, so it's a moment of coming together of the different elements of the police department in gotham which up until now, we've seen there's been a bit of a fractious rivalry between all the different types of units. There's almost like a this hierarchy, this snobbery between them, depending on where they are. So it's a really interesting point of, of these issues. Yeah, and you know, it's essentially you take down a cop, you've got you've got the whole department uh, against you essentially. So, um, so yeah, really interesting. As I said, because it happens in. In Rene's neighborhood, she asks for the case to be given to 
uh, to her. Um, it's a very protective moment of, of Renee. It shows her kind of uh, her uh, way of wanting to protect her area of the city, uh, her her local neighborhood, but also gives her the opportunity to go and confront her father, which is which I love. I think that's a really interesting scene. It's the first time the two characters have been together in over a year, I think, um, in the in the series of comic books. Um, so it's it's an interesting scene when Renee goes and, and tries tries to talk to her dad about the relationship she has with Dee and tries to see if his opinion has softened towards her from the end of the Half-A-Life arc, where he essentially shut her down and said, I don't want to see you again. I think the other thing as well is that Montoya knew Kelly, knew Officer Kelly, mm-hmm. not from the police department, but growing up in that neighborhood. And it was actually she got him started in um, the police mm-hmm. um, and to encourage him to become a police officer. So you get all this backstory of why she wants to investigate this case and Obviously, as Derek says, her father is around there, and this element of tentative steps at reconciliation, which initially seemed to be just brushed aside by her her dad, um, Hernando, Um, he doesn't speak to her. Um, He just simply asks, are you still with um, that woman, Mm -hmm. uh, Dee? She says yes, and they kind of leave in silence. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no reconciliation um, even though there are steps towards trying to achieve that by Montoya. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the elements that they're starting to bring in now and really focus on over the course of the next, of all the rest of the chapters, is how personally Montoya takes her role, takes her job at the GCPD. This is really the first one. We've seen some instances of it before where um, there was the incident with Corrigan where she, she beat him to a pulp outside, outside uh, Finnegan's Bar, yeah. where you can tell she takes her job very seriously, takes her personal relationships extremely personally if that makes sense um this is now her neighborhood is threatened and her her local friends her family are threatened in the area and this storyline is very much of about montoya and how she takes this job or this particular case very personally and um, when she asks for the case maggie Sawyer, the the head of uh, the gcpd initially turns her down because she knows how personally uh, montoya takes these kind of things uh, she initially tells her no this isn't for you. There's another lead in this case, not you. Uh, I know it's in your local neighborhood, but that's you're not policing the local neighborhood. Eventually, she gives in, but I think it's a good starting point for this whole arc of of stories, really. Yeah, it's, it, and it's a huge character development, I think, for for Renny Montoya, and um, I think you kind of see her character as a cop and dealing with everything that goes on in Gotham within the GCPD with her external relationships. But this is one of the first time, certainly for me, it's not to say that there's no hints at it earlier, where you really get the sense that she internalizes an awful lot of what has happened in her life from coming out to her parents um, or being forced out to her parents, being forced out in the police department, the protection of her partner, uh, Crispus Allen, from Corrigan by taking the bullet and essentially undermining the entire case against Corrigan. And she internalizes a lot of this. And what we'll find out, um, as we just discussed through Keystone Cops, is that you know Dr. Alchemy also knows how to push her button. Absolutely. And this comes out that he baits her. He baits her all the time about her sexuality, um, about her partnership with Crispus Allen. And you can see that it doesn't get to Crispus Allen in the same way that 
it really affects Rene Montoya. Absolutely. And coupled with the initial brush-off by her father in his corner shop, uh, where she's trying to kind of say, can we get back together? That initial brush-off, I think, really sets in motion a change that gets noticed by Crispus Allen, this idea of her becoming almost more violent. Her expression yeah. is through violence. And it's what Dee also said um, in the previous issues that we looked at, where she says, sometimes I think you enjoy the violence of the job and this sissy. Yeah. It's not simply you having to put up with it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so back to the investigation itself. So as we said, it was the, the lab of Dr. Alchemy in, uh, in Gotham, an, an old lab that he left behind before he was sent to prison in Keystone. So um, this leads for our ultimate crossover, as I mentioned, where uh, where Montoya and Alan get to fly to, to Keystone. He's uh, banged up in Iron Heights. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and, and essentially Keystone's equivalent of Arkham Asylum by the exactly. looks of things. Um, just really interesting to kind of see this crossover. Really interesting to see these cops. And just a quick reference, just a quick reference to the the Flash at the time, Wally West. Um, I like the little joke. It's essentially when they arrive at the airport and pick, picked up by the two cops, uh, they say to turn on the heater. Um, heater's not working. Why is that? Uh, West never seems to have time to fix this stuff. Yeah, he's the Flash. You should always have time. It's a nice little gag just to kind of bring in that, so we know the setup. You and know? you get the sense of the Flash being this personality and and this figure within Keystone. They talk about picking up souvenirs about from um, you know, t-shirts, mugs, or whatever it might be of the Flash because he's that kind of personality. He he operates i suppose in daytime mm -hmm. uh, and he's seen as less threatening keystone is obviously you know the nicer of the two cities absolutely absolutely and i guess the bigger thing is he's also a superhero which gotham doesn't have gotham has batman who's you know who isn't seen as a superhero he's seen as a vigilante for years that's that's his role in the city essentially whereas flash is seen as this this startling superhero that comes along and saves everybody's life he's seen as a very different kind of character and held up as a poster boy for the city i would doubt it, the, even though the reference was made before about people coming to the city for um for this batman souvenirs and coming coming tourists coming to the city for batman i doubt any of them actually want to stand in his presence or many of them unless they're slightly crazy um i don't even want to actually stand in his presence he's a scary character exactly and as, as derek said it's great crossover potential for the tv shows if that were ever to be something that happens mm -hmm. i mean to do with the crossover between the two police departments but you could arguably say the crossover of iron heights and villains in iron heights to gotham mm -hmm. and even villains in Arkham to to well, Starling City in the case of the TV. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a real indicator that crossovers between these different TV shows are definitely possible. Yeah. And they don't have to involve the main superhero or the main protagonist. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um but yeah, I love the I love the kind of interplay here. There's another kind of setup uh, and very specifically uh, ripped from uh, from Silence of the Lambs, which I think is, is a real touch point for for Greg Rucker when he's writing his stories. There's definitely a touch point there with uh, with Silence of the Lambs because there's even a quid pro quo moment or quid pro quo uh, quote from Dr. Alchemy when he's trying to needle at Rene Montoya and, and Christmas Allen. He sees he's not getting very far with Christmas Allen, but he goes for the jugular. Yeah. Uh, quite literally later on, but goes for the jugular with uh, with Rene Montoya. Starts to, as John as John has mentioned, starts to 
probe her, start to get at her about her relationship with Dee, about her sexuality, but also about her aggression. And once he sees her reacting, then he starts to push it further on her aggression. Um, and he's pretty cerebral, he's slightly aloof, he's pretty arrogant. You know, he kind of starts to say, you need me, and, and otherwise I'm not playing Borg. And th- there's the whole... Um, the prison psychologist prior to them entering in a bit like you have in Science of the Lambs as well mm. as Derek says, where it's like you know make sure that you're not the one being manipulated by him that um, you're the one controlling him, that you're the one sort of setting the agenda and in a sense that really falls apart for the two of them because he knows he's in that win-win situation because they have no other alternative because He's there saying, I can save Officer Kelly and this mutation that he's going through after he's been exposed to his concoction of chemicals. Yeah, yeah. And his proposal is that he travels to Gotham yeah. uh, with them. So, um, so yeah, they get, they get approval to take Dr. Alchemy out of this institution, take him to Gotham with them. And, yeah, does he actually solve anything for them other than nope. he goes to the hospital, he monitors the mutation of uh, young Officer Kelly, who just, I love the art in these in these sections, because he actually looks like he's in serious pain. Uh, I laughed there, I didn't mean to laugh. Um, he looks like he's in serious pain. His wife um, is is absolutely disturbed by, by this change or metamorphosis that's going on. He starts to look a little bit like Clayface, the character from DC Comics, is the way I was seeing it. He looks like his body's melting, he looks like he's... He can change into anything. Um, and it's basically, he doesn't want to help at all. Mm-hmm. And he wants to see the handiwork that his chemicals has done on this this cop. And he kind of, he's there to finish a plan. He kind of, it's now the next phase. And he zaps Officer Kelly in the bed. He dissolves his cuffs mm-hmm. in front of everyone. He also dissolves the necklace around Montoya's neck. I told you, you went for the jugular. Exactly. He changes all the composition of the metals, he zaps um, Officer Kelly, and then it's his escape, essentially. Yeah. This is his planned escape from Iron Heights. It's just a couple of little touches within those scenes, though. So he's left, firstly, he's left Renan Montoya with a permanent scar of the dual female symbol, essentially, yeah. which is now permanent on her neck from now on, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is really really interesting. So not only does has she had to come out to everybody, now it's branded on her that she is a lesbian. There's nothing that can happen, nothing that can change. It's like as if Gre- Greg Rucka and, and Brubecker were setting this as being a permanent, uh, permanent part of that character from now on. And the other piece is, did you know that the piece that he used to do all this is the Philosopher's Stone? That's what he apparently magics out of out of thin air to yeah. uh, to convert all these metals. So once again, the philosopher's stone. It's been used in many different mediums, but most, I suppose, the one that most people remember is Harry Potter, which exactly, is, which was called the philosopher's stone in America. And it's now, it's I think it's just been used in as part of the brand new film that's out this week of uh, as above, so below as as the central MacGuffin for for the film. It's one of those ones that's it's it's kind of a catch all. Um, catch-on MacGuffin that's used from many different uh, mediums, but I think it was quite interesting that they used it here. Uh, it even, it even, it's even written in the the lead into the next issue that is written that um, uh, from Alan's point of view that uh, that Doctor Alchemy just magics this out of the air or finds it somewhere. It uh, doesn't really know how it appears, but it's just used. <laughs> so, yeah. Unfortunately, whilst this is all going on, Officer Kelly, who's now kind of awoken by the power of the Philosopher's Stone. <laughs> He's been zapped by it. Um, 
he's going crazy in the hospital room and he kills his wife mm. um who's by his side um, and has been all the all the way through his pretty agonizing sort of ailment with all these burns and this mutation and he kills um his wife Sharon which is a real sad event mm. um the floor's knocked out Christmas Allen falls through through there uh, Renan Montoya is knocked, obviously now branded with the the dual female symbol, and um, and the Batman sort of appears to prevent Officer Kelly from escaping the hospital and Doctor Alchemy, but we then get to see this violence come out of Renan Montoya again because as Batman stops Doctor Alchemy, Officer Kelly now in in his full mutated version. Um, escapes from from the hospital by jumping through um, the window mm -hmm. and out the big hole that's been created in the side of the hospital. And Rene Montoya essentially finishes Batman's work on Doctor Alchemy, mm. giving him a real big beatdown. And this is pretty violent. Yeah, it's another brutal beatdown from Rene Montoya. I wouldn't like to meet her in a dark alley, whatever. But Batman, <laughs> <laughs> my gosh, she's uh, she's really has proven that she can take on anybody, and if you push her buttons hard enough, she's a uh, she's a strong opponent. Um, get the feeling that's gonna gonna be something that'll play out in in Gotham the TV show as well. After that, there's the hunt then for Officer Kelly, mm. um, and he's not going rampaging through um, Gotham. He goes back to the neighborhood where it all happened. Yeah, he doesn't seem too violent, really. It's it's kind of he gets back to the local neighborhood. He's watching what's going on around him. He sees the kids that he's essentially saved, and it starts to come back to him what's happened to him. Unfortunately, because he's a huge monster, essentially to everybody around, a car starts beeping, beeping its horn at him. He picks up the car, crushes it, and throws it over his back. So it shows the mutation. It shows that he's now really strong. And now it drives starts, him mad, kind of yeah. angry, um, and stops crushing and destroying stuff yeah it's like he's suddenly twisted now um this is across the airwaves as well and montoya suddenly is like my dad yeah. and this is one of the other lovely little touches is that despite everything that has happened between the two of them and um, because again whilst montoya was away in keystone her dad actually comes to her apartment to uh, try and start reconciliation mm. and montoya's not there but he is in he's brought in by D and he stays for a few minutes. You don't find out what they've been talking about or what they chat about, but um that's again both sides, unbeknownst to themselves, have made attempts at reconciliation. And yeah. now in this moment where there is a mute a meta human essentially, a, a mutant there. Montoya is driven to go and protect her dad yeah. and the safety of her dad because it's happening right outside his corner shop yeah and that brings them together which is really nice but has tragic consequences for officer kelly yeah and um, at the hands of his former partner uh, officer don mm -hmm. and montoya yeah i must say i, I do like that as the storyline it is as i said as i said earlier on it's the hero cop that's been you know he did nothing wrong here the the trap that was set wasn't something that was specifically laid for him he just fell into it he died at the hands of um of his partner, and everything that was set up was it could have happened to anybody else. He just happened to be the one that was the centre of it. His wife also died. You know, it's a, it's a really tragic kind of kind of story, but really really well written, really well done. Yeah, um, I like that one. That's yeah, it. it's a great one that explores further Montoya's character, mm -hmm. 
particularly her emotional vulnerability and her internalization of problems. And that certainly plays out over the course uh, of the remaining issues. Yeah. So I guess on to next issue, on to, uh, to nature. So this is a one-off issue. It starts off the collected books, if you're looking at it. It starts off the collected book, Carrigan. It's a short story, really. They're starting to take the perspective of an individual character as they lead into each of these stories. So nature starts off from the perspective of one of the corrupt cops uh, on the beat in, in Gotham. Um, this guy Ted actually works with uh, Corrigan, uh, who we've seen before in, in one of the previous issues. Um, but essentially they murder a homeless girl at the beginning of the uh, of the storyline. Yeah, so. they're, they're chasing down uh, one of their informants. I think he, it's a, a drug bust that's gone... Yeah badly and they've chased him down and they hear just within one of the dumpsters this noise and it's a, a homeless girl who's kind of making a bed in the dumpster and she's running away they grab her and in doing so it breaks her neck yeah. um, and she's dead and they just then phone it in as look we've just found this they corroborate their stories because they want to make sure that it's just seen as them calling in a dead body found on the street rather yeah. than them being implicated. One of the first um, issues then is this kind of the bad cop element. This mm. is the, the reflective part of the previous um, Keystone Cops where you have the good cops. These are most definitely the bad cops. Um, and that you're introduced to kind of essentially their, their handler within the police department just to show how corrupt the institution of the GCPD can be mm -hmm. it with the narcotics detective, Detective Kenzie. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's really interesting. I love, I kind of love this way of, of, of thinking from these cops. They absolutely think they're untouchable. They think that Corrigan's getting away with this for years, and therefore they can also just get away with something like the murder of a homeless girl. Who cares about her in their heads? Um, we're cops. She's nothing. We can get away with it. We'll just tell Corrigan about it, and he'll he'll sort it out for us. Which generally is the case. He he does sort it out. Um, these cops do get away with the murder of the homeless girl. Yeah, um, but there's a really delicious um, and botanical twist <laughs> in this tale. Um, and that is that it isn't the detectives from the MCU, because Rennie and Christmas are, again, assigned to... Uh, I mean, they have a pretty heavy workload, it seems. They're obviously good, because they're assigned um, to this case... But it's not the MCU, it's not um, members in the homicide unit, it's not the members from narcotics, from internal affairs, it's not um, other members or other units or other divisions in the GCPD. It is Poison Ivy who brings these two um, cops, these two police officers to justice yeah. by essentially smothering them in tentacles of different plants and subsuming them into the grass and they get incorporated into um Gotham City Park nature yeah. yeah yeah hence the title of the, the title of the uh, of the issue like the one thing i do like uh, the way that uh, poison ivy draws them out is essentially by giving them the opportunity to grow within the evil organizations or the corrupt uh, side of Gotham she gives them the opportunity to to up their level essentially from being just uh, cops that serve Corrigan to possibly being on his level and they jump at the chance to kind of move up the, the ranks of the of the evil side of Gotham. Yeah, really. Detective Kenzie comes at them with a proposal to do a trade. They say that they will do it. Corrigan helps 
to get the the evidence from the locker in the police department. Mm -hmm. They go off to make the trade, and in fact, it ends up being a trap to trap them in the web of poison ivy. Mm, yeah. What do you think of this one? Like, this is a this is a single issue. We've been pretty critical of some of the single issues in the past. What do you think of this one as a? As I think a this is one of the better ones, and I think it is certainly better as you move through the remaining issues. Again, I think actually from Keystone Cops, and even I think. The, the few issues before that, they really tee up um, the remaining story arcs mm. in amongst all these arcs, even though it doesn't necessarily deal with Corrigan, it doesn't necessarily deal with corruption explicitly or centrally within the story. It's always there at the back, and it, it gradually gets ramped up. And in this issue, it very much focuses on the wider corruption within the police department. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote down in my notes... Everyone in the in the GCPD, other than the MCU, are on the take. That's it. It just yeah. feels like that, doesn't it? And I think it serves to tee up and underpin the events that go on and happen in the Corrigan Part 2 arc, very much so. Mm. It also serves to introduce a quite central character for Corrigan Part 2 arc as well, and that's Detective Kenzie in, that's right. in Narcotics. So it's a really, a really good one, a um, short one-off issue, and then we just kind of crack into the next arc. So this arc is called Dead Robin, this is the, the four-parter. Um, we talked in the last episode, I think, about uh, Lights Out, which was the single issue where Commissioner Aikens takes down the bat signal, and we talked about the fact that this, we wanted to see some kind of implication from this. This directly leads from the fallout from that whole uh, that whole arc. Essentially, is where Commissioner Aikens outlawed masked vigilantes within Gotham, and um, to protect himself from this, Batman has sent off sent away all of his uh, all of his cohorts, all of his all of the Bat family, essentially to different cities. But essentially, it opens up with the image of dead uh, Robin. Yeah, it's a startling image of what appears to be Robin in an alleyway, dead on the floor. It looks like he has either missed his jump between mm. two buildings or that he was pushed or that it's suicide. Mm. There's these different ideas going through and rippling through the police force. There's also the idea then of, well, is this actually the boy wonder? Yeah. Is this Robin? And if it is, if we actually investigate and root down into his identity... Does that mean we're actually going to find out who Robin was? And this could have implications for the identity of Batman mm. in terms of the associations that he may have had. And so this was a really interesting idea that if you give the police department long enough with the body and investigating him through forensics, through associations, that they could also uncover the identity of not only Robin, but the Batman as well. And I think these um, these series of issues, uh, 33 through to 36, is a really good investigation piece, yeah. Yeah. Um, encompassing and utilising most members of the Major Crimes Unit from um, Josie McDonald, Marcus Driver, Romy um, Chandler, and so on. Yeah. Again, with implications here, certainly for Marcus Driver and Romy Chandler, because of their partners being lost and their essential blame being put on the Batman and his actions. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I 
just to echo your sentiments, I do like the idea that this is the kind of the opposite way that most comic books take the masked vigilante idea. And um, we've always seen it as and uh, been told by through comics for years and years and years. You wear this to protect yourself from a bad guy taking out his retribution on your family and friends. But essentially, if you've been wearing a mask your whole life and something happens to you, who knows who you are? So the police don't have any idea if this is the real Robin or not. It's a really interesting idea and something that I've not seen in any comic book before, taken yeah. from that side. And the the cops immediately on the scene have a really interesting um, cause of death for the boy wonder, uh, cement poisoning, <laughs> um, like which line, yeah. is essentially his head is caved in by hitting the cement. Mm. And this is a really good line. Um, I think I laughed, laughed out loud the yeah. minute I was reading it and said it straight to you. It's a good one. But um, it's uh, the other aspect of this as well, which is kind of, it brings it back to the reality of it, is this idea that, well, the boy wonder is a 16-year-old or less. Um, he's a 15-year-old minor. Mm. And so by association, Batman would be responsible for his death yeah. because he is his, well, potentially his legal guardian in that sense, Bruce Wayne. Yeah. Not that they know this at the moment, but that there would be an element of blame on Batman because he partners with Batman. So, yeah. yeah, it's something that's played out a couple of times within within the Bat Batman storylines in the past where where the guilt that he has for the death of Jason Todd, for example, or the death of some of the other Robins is that essentially these are kids that he's talked into fighting alongside him, whether he knows it or not. He's convinced them to fight alongside them. And as they die or as they, they move on, he always has that guilt inside him. This is the extra guilt on top of the the death of his parents that he couldn't stop. It's the extra guilt that always keeps heaping on top of yeah. Batman is that he's got these these children, essentially, that he's convinced to fight alongside him in really dangerous situations. And sometimes bad things happen to them and he takes on that guilt as well. There's an ensuing media frenzy, obviously, because mm. Robin could be dead. Yeah. The One of the vigilantes, one of the heroes, depending on which side of that that line you, you stand, um has apparently died and so there's this huge media frenzy resulting but what's happening as well is that there appears to be a leak from the police department mm -hmm. as well which given the last few issues looking at the corruption going on in in the police that doesn't appear that surprising mm. but the the images are leaked and in particular there's that image of the boy wonder dead in the alleyway and it's a great image as well it's a great pain um within the comic with the rain coming down and robin just sort of spread on the on the cement mm -hmm. dead with the cape and in his costume yeah one of the crime scene photos is leaked to the press as well yeah yeah no it's it's really interesting so it's quite a cool concept um, they got the, the investigation itself is really good where they where they're trying to find out who the kid is and trying to find out whether even if they even when they do find out who this kid who's been killed is they still don't know whether he's Robin or not his parents have no clue but his parents start to get convinced by the media that it is Robin yeah. or maybe it's one of many Robins that are out there and nobody knows there's no uh, there's no indication yeah. and I love in the background of the story of this story of the investigation of the of Gotham Central unit uh there is also the investigation of Batman, and they keep coming across it uh, over the course of the issues. Um, there's that great scene in, in Arkham Asylum where they go to investigate some of the villains, the, the major Batman villains, and Batman's already been there, where he's beaten 
each one of them individually to the pulp. I love the explanation from the guard in, in Arkham. It's like, it seemed to have been a power cut for about half an hour. And um, when we turned the lights back on, we found them all beaten up, which is great. But... Although, strangely, we do see Poison Ivy being held in Arkham mm. as well, which, given that she was in the previous uh, one-off nature, yeah. it seems a bit strange, and maybe that wasn't quite thought through as well as it could have been. Yeah. But you get the great line because Christmas Allen and Raymond Toya are sent to Arkham to investigate whether all these villains are still actually in Arkham. Mm-hmm. And Christmas has that great line um it's not surprising we're coming to check whether they're still here given Arkham's revolving door. Yeah. Like it's a really good sort of in joke that well you know they come in, they get they seem to leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't even escape. They leave. Um and so they go to check to make sure that all of Batman's old adversaries and villains um, are still locked up. Yeah, and just see the little callback in there from um, with Harvey Dent, where he's he's in his cell going, uh, going, Rene, Rene, come back, please, come yeah, back. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Just that little callback. He's been in prison since that yeah, time. And that's a great touch. That's a really good touch. So these investigations ultimately ID the boy wonder. Uh, they ID, ID him through the child registration program that's happened um, in Gotham as Roger uh, Boundback. Um, and as you said, his parents ultimately get convinced that he was Robin, mm-hmm. uh, the boy wonder, because he was doing gymnastic classes and all this, and he would be out doing them in so the late evening, at night, so yeah. late at night. So they think and get convinced that he was. And I love once again, once again, <laughs> another corruptible character in Gotham. The parents have just lost their son, and then start selling their story to the media the following day. Is there anybody good in Gotham? I, I know Jim Gordon calls himself the last good man in Gotham in the in the Gotham trailer, um, but is he is he right? Is there no good people in Gotham? They're, they're willing to sell their story the following morning. You know, no problems. But, uh, yeah, but as well, Batman does make himself known to the detectives. Mm. And he says, Robin's in Bloodhaven. Mm. Um, he, this is not Robin. The police kind of s- still want to make sure that it isn't. They still want to do the investigation because of this sort of fractious relationship between Batman and the detectives. Uh, but he is telling them to stay out of this investigation, that he's looking into it. And of course, that would fire any detective up to kind of say, well, who do you think you are telling me not to do my job and in particular this goes for Romy Chandler Mm. and who lost her partner um, in the soft targets story arc uh, to the Joker where Batman saves the media reporter and TV presenter the news presenter and not her partner Mm. so she's still hugely wound up uh, and angry uh, about this yeah yeah and I I love that it's uh, herself and Marcus Driver, who start to kind of work together on this. Marcus is trying to calm her down. He understands losing your partner. He starts to try, he tries to calm her down. She's not, the woman's not for turning. Um, she is absolutely convinced that this is Batman. They go to the Iceberg Lounge where they've gotten a tip off that Oswald Cobblepot is back in town um, and find Batman interrogating 
Oswald on the floor of his uh, of his office. Basically, interrogating is a, is a, a nice word for it. He's beating him to a pulp. On Bannon's gone to town on yeah. all of these um, villains and dubious people, yeah. like big time. As I say, this is what I love. You know, you could you could absolutely see this from the other side and other issues of another comic book. Uh, but this is from the police perspective. They walk in on Batman beating up. Essentially, yeah, okay, Penguin's a criminal. Oswald Caldwell's a criminal. But he's just a businessman in this world of Gotham. There's nothing been proven against him, and now they find him being beaten up by Batman. So how would that look to a cop who thinks Batman is the killer? Exactly. Uh, to paraphrase Donal Logue as Harvey Bullock in the upcoming TV show, this is not a place for nice people, mm-hmm. and including like Batman is not particularly a nice person. But in this instance, in the Iceberg Lounge, Romy Chandler draws her gun, and fires at him. Mm. Um, and the, this this issue, the opening issue, is kind of bookended by Robin shown lying on the floor dead and what would appear to be Batman dying at the end being shot by Romy Chandler. Her vengeance, her revenge is is actually sealed by shooting him as he too is lying on the floor of the Iceberg Lounge apparently dead. Yeah, I love that. But yeah, obviously... Batman's dealt with guns many, many times before, and uh, start, next issue starts up with, and he's fine essentially. But a great moment where you've got Oswald, <laughs> Oswald looking at him, kind of going, uh, "Is he dead or not? I'm not too sure." He looks a little bit sad that he's dead, and then immediately pleads with the cops, going, "Well, if you need someone to be the eyewitness for this, I can say that whatever you want me to say." You know, it's yeah. it's the usual Oswald turning the situation to his advantage. But Romy, Romy Chandler essentially gets a broken nose yeah. out of a deal because um, yeah. he's not dead. He takes her gun and punches her in the nose mm. um, because she's fired the gun without due course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, a really, really good, uh, really good start. I think as well what these issues do is really investigate again this relationship between the police department, in particular the MCU, as I mentioned earlier, and the Batman, and they do it through Romy Chandler and Marcus Driver, where they have. This real big heart-to-heart in the locker room where Marcus Driver and Romy Chandler's kind of relationship or or um, dislike for the Batman is explored further. Um, to the point where Marcus Driver says, I don't actually hate him. I just, I could have done what he had done, which was to take down Mr. Freeze and get the justice that his partner deserved. Mm. But I've, I've not held it in. And he's kind of there trying to counsel Romy Chandler because she is holding in her hatred um, for the Batman. And that, in a sense, is corrupting her emotionally and giving her essentially bad judgment. But that's really interesting. And again, we get this underlying difference between Rennie and Crispus uh, on the Batman as well being mm-hmm. played out over the course of, of these issues where, you know, for Rennie... Batman is almost an acquaintance. She knows him. She took up the badge because of him. She wanted also to protect her city. Mm-hmm. Whereas Crispus Allen sees him as part of that root cause as to why the city is going to the dogs. Because to him, Batman is just a vigilante. And again, that's explored and carried through from previous issues, which I think is really interesting as oh, well. Definitely. definitely. Um as the investigation continues, so does the media frenzy, essentially. And uh, another piece is published with another crime scene photo of, of dead Robin. And the second photo really pushes Detective Sawyer, or Captain Maggie Sawyer, over the edge, really. she's uh, She wants to know where the leak is. 
for these crime scene photographs and how they're getting into the newspaper. And it starts to point towards Lippmann, who we've seen uh, previously, and he's the main Gotham Gazette reporter mm. in all of these issues. And she starts to really focus in on him as, you know, where are you getting these photos from? Who is your source? For Lippmann, it becomes a real point of principle because he doesn't want to. And for him, it's unacceptable that Sawyer uh, is asking him to give away his sources um, to her so that she can arrest them uh, and stop them from putting all these crime scene photos. But that's the main reason why Sawyer is so uh, het up and angry about this is because they are crime scene photos being uh, put in to the press, not not post-forensic photos mm. or even just, you know, after the event. These are crime scene photos. Actual and, evidence, yeah. Yeah. She's so angry, she escorts him out because she is quite adamant now that he has no special privilege within the MCU, within Gotham Police Department, um, for information to put into uh, his stories in the paper. Yeah. And she actually bars him at one point from one of the big press conferences that's had with the commissioner and with herself and um, describing what is the second body to emerge dressed in the boy wonders outfit yeah yeah in the meantime robin actually turns up doesn't he, he comes back from bloodhaven and goes and meets our friend stacy on top of the roof uh, he comes to meet her and tell her that he's alive essentially that's all he's there for stacy says come down and meet the the Gotham City PD, they're the ones that need to need to know for definite that you're alive. And he goes, well, we have rules. Batman has rules. We don't meet, we don't meet the cops. But um, she does also bring up the point that Batman's got Romy Chandler's gun. Mm -hmm. And what's happening sort of in the behind the scenes of all this turmoil of the Boy Wonder being apparently killed and all the media frenzy, and what's happening with Lippmann and Sawyer is within the MCU... Everyone else is aware that Remy Chandler fires without due cause. Mm -hmm. Her gun's gone missing, but this could really come down on her. Mm -hmm. And so Stacey kind of asks Robin the favor, could you tell Batman to bring the gun back? Yeah. Um, so that um, she doesn't get into trouble. She hates him enough already, almost. Um, and it's a really nice little scene. Uh, you almost see Stacey go a bit gooey-eyed for Robin, I think. Um, yeah. And it, it's a nice little scene that's played out. And it's played out again a bit later on when Robin does bring Romy Chandler's gun back from Batman. Mm. Um, and he gives it to Stacey so that she can pass it on to, to Romy Chandler. But that becomes quite difficult for Stacey yeah. uh, to yeah. do because there's so much going on with all these dead robins happening yeah, yeah so it's, it's a fun little uh background piece where you just see stacy in the background kind of going i've, I've got something to tell you yes like it's a, it's a really important thing this could be the end of romy chandler's career essentially if they find out that she's shot without due course that she's just completely ignored as a background character by uh by all the rest of the major crimes unit because we're they're the major crimes unit it kind of indicates why all the other police officers hate them they just seem to ignore everything that's going on around them yeah. unless they're talking to other detectives in the unit but within the investigation then the second body that's found dressed in robin's outfit is pulled from the harbor mm -hmm. again there's more images released of that whole harbor area where the the body was done before the press conferences and before the press have been told officially mcdonald then thinks that she recognizes 
the body immediately. Mm. And ultimately, it comes to light that this guy is from uh, an advertisement, the Mighty Mints ad. So I wanna, I wanna ask you: Is this a little callback for, for McDonald's superpower, her power? That that's why she recognizes Dead Robin before anybody else does. That she has her little, her little uh, mind meld, as you as you call it, with with Robin, and instantly recognizes who he is. Do you think it's difficult to know because mm. I think you'd like for that to be the case. It's the intuition that she has. Isn't yeah, it? I think that intuition that psychic ability you would like for that to be the case because in some ways the whole um issue of her being a psychic in the mcu um and her telling her partner marcus driver mm. hasn't been explicitly revealed yeah it's just done at the end of that particular story arc and then it's kind of dropped mm. and josie mcdonald doesn't really feature heavily after that yes and in this case she pops up and i think you would like it to be that intuition but because there's the mighty mint advert Mm. surrounding the explanation you kind of think well it could be either it could just be simply well i've seen that advert it's on tv all the time there's billboards all around gotham so that's why she knows yeah yeah but i like to think it would be the the instinct that she has and the sidekick ability Yeah. yeah Yeah, I just think it's a just think it's an interesting touch, and you're right; it's not really brought up. There's another instance which I'll talk about in a little while, um, but but yeah, it's not really brought up uh, again. Unfortunately, we talked about it, hoping that it was going to be brought up, but unfortunately, it wasn't. Um, so I suppose kind of to crack on with the the story itself, you know, it's 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 quite a quite an interesting idea. Um, when they start, when they kind of complete their investigation as they move into accusing one of the reporters, um, yeah, a colleague of Littman's, yeah, um, Dunning. Ultimately, what happens is that there's a third kid going missing because they start to link it to the talent agency mm. that um, the second boy who was found murdered in the harbour, he had gone through a talent agency. And so they start to look through all their clients and they come up with this third kid who's missing, uh, Zach Weston. Mm. In the meantime, Crispus Allen essentially... Um, sees a huge difference between what was leaked to the press and what was on the front cover of the Gotham Gazette and the crime scene photos. Mm-hmm. And it ends up that they're not crime scene photos. They're actually, they were taken before police the ever police turned up. ever arrived. Yeah, yeah. So I love this exploration here. So it's essentially one of the press, Dunning, is the perpetrator of the crime. And it's because he wants to become part of, he wants to stop being a reporter and stop watching from the outskirts, wants to be part of Batman's world, wants to become a supervillain of Batman. And he's kind of pleading with Batman, saying when Batman eventually catches up to him, uh, which again, I wouldn't want to be in that position. No. But, um, but when he eventually catches up with Batman, he's kind of going, I did it, I did it. Now I'm one of your rogues gallery. I'm now one of your villains. He's so... Um, He's so pleading to be to be included and pleading to be yeah. part of the real Gotham. And he will only speak to Batman yeah. after he's been brought in to, um, to be questioned. And of course, Batman comes in and essentially scurs the living daylights out of him with, again, pretty violent approach to his questioning and interrogation style. Um, very reminiscent, I think, throughout this whole story arc to um christian bale's um interrogation of the joker mm. in the dark knight yeah absolutely absolutely um but i do like this it kind of it kind of it's a callback to that question that always comes up of would there be costume freaks would there be freaks in the city as the gcpd called them um without batman 
And this is essentially Dunning is has been created as a supervillain from being a bystander and a, and a watcher all the way through his career. He's been created as a villain because of mm-hmm. the presence of Batman. And once again, that argument is coming back up and just seen from a different angle. You know, I, I really like what what Brubeck and Rooker have done here in their in their look at this at this framing of of uh, of a bad guy and how the creation of a bad guy. It's quite good, and mm-hmm. it's something that you're probably going to see quite a lot in in Gotham in the TV show and how these how these people are created by their surroundings. Obviously, Batman's not there, but there are other surroundings within Gotham that are going to force some criminals out that may not have been, may not have happened in any other city. Exactly, exactly. But the investigation is closed. They realise Robin is still alive. They get uh, Zach Weston, this third uh, kid who's missing. They get him back, uh, and Dunning, obviously, is sent off to to prison mm-hmm. and in the meantime uh Romy chandler also gets her firearm back although it's a very close call <laughs> um but sawyer captain sawyer is willing to accept the explanation yeah. uh, as stacy finally manages to get the gun into Romy's hands yeah yeah uh, really good uh, really good really good it. really good arc overall i must say this is one of my one of my favorites i, I totally know what uh what brubaka and rucker were trying to do in creating completely separate uh parts of the of the mcu showing it's a 24 hour a day unit essentially mm-hmm. but i love this kind of crossover internally between all these characters it's great to see them all working together and bringing them all together like they did with soft targets as well it's yeah. a real it's a family piece almost of the mcu all working together on a really big case and there's nothing bigger than apparently one of the main characters in this case robin appearing to be dead yeah yeah, no, really, really good one. Um, but then we come then into another single issue story, Sunday, Bloody Sunday. Um, Maybe it's because I'm Irish. I just have you two in my head every time. Well, that's the same, same for me. So this once-off single issue story, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, is a crossover with the events that are occurring in the Infinite Crisis story. Mm. And it's melded together with an exploration of Crispus Allen and his motives as a detective and his relationships both professionally with Rene Montoya and also with his family and his wife and his two children. And I really like the delve into Crispus Allen. Mm -hmm. Um, But unfortunately, it has this crossover that seems to be just thrown in. It's just odd. It doesn't fit with what the writers are trying to do here and that's i don't think that's their fault i think it's the fact that they have to incorporate this crossover this tie-in and it just doesn't make much sense because it doesn't pop up again in any of the remaining issues Mm -hmm. it doesn't really fully fit in with the story only in the fact that you get to hear that christmas allen doesn't believe in god his wife does, and that's a source of tension between the two, and that all of a sudden this cosmic event is occurring that involves um, the spectre who's gone mad and is unravelling all the magic. Um, it's creating a sort of a divine vengeance, and there's, you know, the rock of eternity is shattered, the seven deadly sins are free upon Gotham, Captain Marvel has come down, and he kind of sees that, well, maybe there is something other than just simply science or this earth, that there are divine beings, maybe, yeah, um, or magic or supernatural elements that are all 
coming and filtering in to Gotham at this moment and look, looking to destroy it. But it makes no sense to me. Yeah, it's a bit of a weird crossover. I, I've never read an Infinite Crisis. Apologies to those of you who have. I know it's one of those ones that's kind of on my reading list, definitely. But it's taking one issue out of what was... I don't know how many issues were involved in that crossover, but I think it's every single comic that was alive at the time in the regular DC universe. Um, taking Picking up one of those issues and reading it front to back, I think they did the best they possibly could with, with the kind of framing device of Infinite Crisis. And by doing it from the perspective of Christmas Allen, a man, yeah. of, a man you know, whose family essentially believe in God, he's a very central family man. I like what they did with it. Um, it takes a look at Christmas as being the protector or the shield for his family uh, from Gotham. The one thing he wants to do in the middle of this huge crisis is to get back to his family. Um, I like that framing device. I like what they did with what they had to use and what elements they had to use. But it doesn't feel congruous with the rest of the rest of Gotham Central. It feels completely in Congress for the book, the only other word I have for it. Um, exactly. It's of a different story, and it mm, feels that. Really um, And especially in comparison to the whole narration of Crispus about his motives of doing the job. Um, again, we're thrown back to essentially his concern that Rennie Montoya, since Two-Face, is beginning to enjoy the violence of the job, yeah. and that her only outlet, her only ability to let off steam and her feelings is through violence mm. that it's no longer simply through being able to talk to one another and to talk through the issues that she has yeah yeah no absolutely and i think it's a, a dude like just a little bit christmas alan is having a bad day and other stories told from his perspective and everybody's bad day is worse than your bad day i suppose but christmas has a bad day um, Rene gets possessed by um by one of the seven deadly sins which turns out to be vengeance or anger i think it is um so she tries to kill christmas alan shazam steps in captain marvel steps in and releases the the uh the spirit of vengeance i suppose the fisherman a bad villain of aquaman apparently uh who even christmas allen comments i'd laugh at him in normal circumstances he also tries to kill detective allen it's a bad day for him isn't it uh, in the middle of all this crisis in the middle of everything that's going on but i like the little touch where it essentially goes to shazam who uh who turns around to christmas and says well i'm going off to protect my family and runs away uh and allen goes well if he's scared about his family and he's shazam heck of I what the, the heck chance do my family have and he it sets him on the path to go to find help his, his family. yeah exactly yeah. find his family i mean i think for me what sunday bloody sunday does is really explore christmas further and it's the first real time that we've gotten to see that mm. where that relationship with his his wife and his kids are brought out more mm. you get a sense of starting to know Crispus Allen. And I think really this is done from a story perspective in relation to then the final arc of Gotham Central, uh, issues 38 to 40, mm. Corrigan Part 2. And um, because you really start to bring in this idea that you maybe understand and know Crispus because up till then you kind of just think that he's He's a bit of a standoffish kind of person. You know, he'll throw out a one-liner. If he doesn't like you, he will tell you, and you feel pretty bad, and you don't necessarily want to be anywhere near him. Yep. If he's loyal to you, he'll stick with you. You know, you start to find out what makes him tick, 
and that's important, I think, for Corrigan Part Two. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think the idea that's definitely borne out here is that Crispus very much has the same um, opinion of his wife as he does of Rene. There's no, obviously, no uh, sexual side of it with Rene, but it's very much he treats both of them as his partners, and both of them are as important in his life as uh, as each other, I suppose. Yeah. Which I think is hugely important going setting up the the uh, arc of Corrigan. Uh, part two. This final story arc, Corrigan Part Two, obviously links back to the initial story arc, Corrigan, mm-hmm. and it links back to the fact that the Internal Affairs case against Corrigan as a corrupt cop was undermined by Rennie looking out for her partner, Crispus Allen. Yeah. And since then, there has been the suggestion that Crispus Allen knows something went on, and up till this point, he has. No knowledge of what happened between Esperanza and Rene Montoya. And their, yeah, their arrangement, wasn't it? But, but he doesn't know until now. Mm. Um, and this trade-off to save his badge doesn't really sit well with Crispus, ultimately. And so he's starting to investigate Corrigan on his own. Yeah, yeah. In the meantime, Rene is starting to really kind of spiral out of control. Um, the, all the comments that people have made over, over the last couple of years seem to be really getting to her. The uh, the idea that her aggression is starting to take over is is really becoming uh, really coming to light. She's starting to drink really late into the night, getting drunk in bars, cheating on dear on D, her girlfriend, uh, starting bar fights at the drop of a hat. You know, um, it's really really powerful kind of scenes that are that are going on with with Rene. Yeah, and these these scenes are really done very well, um, and it's a split page with panels on one side. It's looking at Rene Montoya, as you say, in the the bars, getting drunk, Mm -hmm. cheating on a a girlfriend. And then on the other side, you have Crispus Allen, who's out investigating Corrigan and following Detective Kenzie from Narcotics, who Mm -hmm. we saw in the single issue Nature that we've just talked about. And it's a really great way of doing the storytelling here, almost showing these this partnership, this detective partnership, and how it's split, yeah. and how it's um, they're going down separate routes where they haven't told their their other half essentially, and that's a really interesting and um, visual display of what's going on within the story. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's really really well done, really well done, and and really as the neck kind of tightens around Carrigan, he starts to get more and more brutal. You know, in the past he was very much. He's just making money out of this, and it's and nobody will ever catch him, kind of thing. But as it, as he feels, you know, the the investigation getting closer and closer to him, um, he essentially kidnaps Kenzie and uh, and starts to uh, really brutally beat him to to get the information out of him that he gave to to Detective Allen. Um, yeah, there's a big reveal that Detective Kenzie is not as bad as we first thought from the story with Poison Ivy, and as would appear from the opening pages of this final story arc, because we find that he is actually Crispus's confidential informant. Mm. And one of the things as well on this is that Rennie kind of begins to realise that he is conducting his own private and personal investigation, and she finds this file on his desk. She takes it to Esperanza. Esperanza says, I never heard this. Yeah. Um, Crispus, when he finds out that she's done this, when she confronts him about it, he says, you shouldn't have touched that. You need to forget about this. Because ultimately, both René Montoya and Detective Esperanza in the Internal Affairs 
they can't touch Corrigan. Corrigan knows this. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been emboldened by the fact that anything that comes out of internal affairs, anything that maybe comes from Rene's um, personal dislike and hatred for him, is tainted by the fact that they've undermined their investigation, yeah. their yeah. own investigation. And you really see this descent of Corrigan. I'm not saying that he was ever neutral because he was a corrupt cop and he was painted as a corrupt cop. But it seemed as though it was always being done for money mm. on the on the side. And what you really get teased out within this final arc is are oh, the motives behind him, and they're much darker. Mm. He is essentially the head. It looks of this group of patrol officers that are taking money, mm-hmm. dealing drugs, corrupting evidence, selling evidence, all for money, all on the take. And all quite a tight-knit group. And he is squarely at the top of all of this. And they really begin to picture and show Corrigan as a real dark, dislikable character. Oh, yeah. And quite smarmy. It's really well done. Mm -hmm. Because you really turn against him. Or I did, anyway. I felt I really suddenly turned against Corrigan by the way he was drawn, by the way he behaved. Mm -hmm. And that he seemed to be a much more central villain, yeah. in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. Not just simply a corrupt cop that didn't harm anyone, but you really get to see that he will do anything to protect his turf. Yeah, absolutely. And, and none more so than his treatment with Kenzie. Yeah. Uh, when he finds out that, that Kenzie's been given information to Alan, as I said, it, it's a scene that reminds me of something at a Hellraiser. You know, he's tied to tied to the ceiling by, by chains and beaten uh, to a bloody pulp, essentially. And Alan has to go and investigate this the this missing uh, link, this this uh, missing informant. Yeah, um, it's it's a very brutal scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, it looks he's chained up. Corrigan's got a a wrench, mm-hmm. and one of his informants saw Kenzie with Crispus Allen. Mm-hmm. He reports back to Corrigan, and this then spirals the entire story into a descent of of violence and shock, really, yeah. for any reader who's been reading since issue one. Absolutely. It's a really, really good um, and powerful end to a 40-issue uh, series. But it's very bloody, and Kenzie is one of the first people to get the full brunt of how um, how far Corrigan will go to protect his interests. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And unfortunately, the second person to take the brunt is... Uh is Detective Crispus Allen. Um, yeah, who's pulled into this trap to find his informant, Detective mm-hmm. Kenzie, and is pulled into a trap with Corrigan's informants, the police officers, but ultimately with Corrigan delivering the fatal and multiple shots. Yeah, five shots in the back, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's um, it really... So you know, I must I must admit, after reading the issue, I didn't want to pick up the next one for a while. I uh, gave it a little break. It was, it was one of those moments when I, I flipped over the page and realized, yeah, okay, Car- uh, Crispus Allen is dead. Um, that's the end of his character, uh, and I didn't really want to read much further for a little while. I had to give myself a little bit of a break, and that's just to me the power of this particular book. I think is really, really, really good. And they open issue two of Corrigan with probably what I think is is probably the most powerful. Four mm-hmm. or five pages that I've seen in in this comic, definitely. 
and in the series definitely, which is a black. It starts, opens with black and white um, shots of of the the death of Crispus Allen with his eyes open on the ground, the reaction of Josie McDonald sitting there looking at the dead body of of one of the members of the MCU, yeah, uh, Maggie Sawyer going to a car and crying in silence, and then Captain Sawyer going and talking to Rene and breaking the news to her in the middle of the night about the death of her partner, all told with no speech bubbles, no information being passed on to the reader but it's everything's being transferred through the panels just in the panels yeah. and it's really affecting this is one half of a partnership that you have certainly coming in from issue 28 but even further back and um, throughout the whole of these issues really um christmas allen Rennie montoya as a partnership have been there mm-hmm. and one of them has been lost in the line of duty yeah and to one of his own, who's mm. corrupt. It's a real bitter taste, I think, like for very, that to happen. Absolutely. It very much comes across that, that Renault's starting to see the error of her ways just around this time when Christmas gets killed. Um, she's gone to, gone to D and apologized to her for everything that's happened, asking for forgiveness from her. But what's going through her head and you can and what's really picked up is that if she had gotten control of this previously, in the past, if she got in control of her, uh, of her anger and her aggression and taking things personally, that herself and Christmas probably would have been working together on this, that she would have been there at the time and it wouldn't have been essentially so easy to take out Christmas Allen if she was there. And it's a real kind of sad, somber note to end off this book. Yeah, it, it is the mantra that they were stronger together mm-hmm. and they were able to do more than the sum of their individual parts when they worked together and this shocks the mcu and the police department into action and investigation of the death of christmas allen yeah but straight off the bat Renée montoya is under no illusion mm-hmm. and she imparts this quite frankly to the rest of the mcu that it was corrigan who caused this she shows the file and the case that he was building against Corrigan and everyone in the MCU either knew he was corrupt had suspicions that he was corrupt and couldn't do anything about it Mm -hmm. and so they begin to build a case around the the rounds that were found at the scene of the crime Mm -hmm. and, and the gun that was used and this is where the calculation of Corrigan comes in and mm. and his malevolence the planning that he went around it because he used a handgun that could take a rifle round mm-hmm. and this leads to a situation where they think that they've got him the net is is ready and Rennie warns them this is what he wants you to think yeah it's almost like the joker in that sense yeah, yeah. He he's planned this. He he's got you to this point in time, because they can't link the round to the gun, but they can link the gun to Corrigan. Mm-hmm. They know he had this this gun. It was a modified Glock handgun, mm-hmm. and it's described as. But the round that is coming back is not this point two two four that they all seem to think it is. This rifle round, but it's a point. Two two three. Now yeah. I don't know anything about bullet rounds. <laughs> I was wondering, you sounded really confident. No, I know I don't know anything about bullet <laughs> rounds at all. It's I'm purely lifting that from the story. Mm-hmm. I have no idea, but this uh, inconsistency means that they can't link the rounds that were fired from the gun 
to Corrigan, yeah. only the gun to Corrigan. There, yeah, there's a couple of little bits about this. So firstly, I, I totally agree with you. Corrigan setting up his alibi is set up as, as if it's nothing. He's just setting it up like he would do it, on, like he's done it a hundred times before. Yeah. He just walks through and goes, right, these are the things I have to put in place to set myself apart. And no matter what, they're never going to find me. Um, secondly, the um, the actual weapon was found by, by Josie McDonald. She stands on the other side of the room across from all six of the guns. And one of those guns calls out to her. So that was the second instance yeah. I was talking about. Where she goes, ah, there you are. That's just her line. And she looks across the room and goes, ah, there you are. As in, it's spoken to me and told me. Uh, which I thought was quite interesting. But nothing was said about it at all. And finally, the mismatch between the weapon and the bullet is traced essentially to the fact that Corrigan must have paid off the person that was doing the matching. That essentially it would have been matched by anybody else if it hadn't been someone that was on Corrigan's payroll. Um, and now that they've given him the opportunity to match the two of them, he's probably taken away the um, the core of the weapon and replaced it with something that will never be matched, no matter where it's sent to now. And um, Corrigan walks, him yeah. and his associate, I think it's Becky Mul- Mulcahy, mm-hmm. they both walk after being brought in for questioning. Yeah. And it's, oh, I was like, it was drawn so smarmily where he walks out of the MCU with his arm around Becky as though they're about to go out on a date. Yeah. There is the suggestion that they get off on this sort of thing anyway mm-hmm. and are about to get off on this thing later on. But it is a stomach-churning kind of uh, depiction of this character who has just done this to one of certainly my favourite yeah, characters really. from from this entire series. Yeah. But it's really powerful because of that and uh really affecting it's really yeah it's a really difficult kind of ending to the story really it's 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 you want to see your heroes triumph you know there's always that bit that's nagging in your head knowing these writers and knowing what they've done over the course of these 40 issues that you're kind of hoping maybe they'll maybe they'll discover something maybe they will take down corrigan they're not going to end it like that they're not going to end the storyline like that they're going to end it on a sore note and it's really difficult to take that everybody in the mcu from all the characters that you've dealt with over the course of the 40 issues they all know it's corrigan it's definitely him that's done it and there's nothing they can do nothing within their power can track it to him and he keeps as you say very smarmily very cockily he just keeps saying well prove it if you think it's me you prove it you know yeah there are some little bits of hope that come through like i love captain Sawyer's response when um after he's just walked and it's basically okay we go after the money that he used to pay off the forensic scientist we we find that link and there must be some trace there this idea this is not over he may have walked at this moment in time we may have screwed up but we need to now follow these links that we feel or are suspicious that he's done or know that he's done. Yeah. And unfortunately for Rene, this is a breaking point for her. She goes to Crispus Allen's wife's uh, house after the, the funeral mm. at Dawes. She's on the uh, veranda of his house with one of his sons. Yeah. And one of his sons just turns around and says, I'm really sorry, Rene, but I just can't stop thinking, why wasn't it you? Mm-hmm. Why weren't you there with him? He's so upset about um, his dad having gone and been shot, and she goes to the bar, gets drunk. But you get you get the idea that that that, that question that the son is posing to Rene is exactly what she's been asking herself ever since she heard of the death of Christmas. Why wasn't it me? Why wasn't I there to help exactly. him? Why wasn't I there to protect him? 
much like, as we said over the course of the previous four or five issues, she takes everything personally. She wants to be the one to save everybody and save everything that she's connected with. And this time, her partner, her closest person, uh, even with D, there was a lot of there's a lot of relationship problems they've had over the last couple of months. Herself and Christmas, there haven't been that many. She just wants to save him, and she can't now. It's, but it's D gone. is struggling with with Rene as much as Christmas was uh, more, with regards to the so. violence. Yeah, probably more yeah. so. Yeah. Um, and it leads to a breaking point, and Rennie storms over to Corrigan's apartment, mm-hmm. batters down the door, knocks out Becky, and essentially faces. Corrigan down with a gun to his head. Yeah. Fantastic. And she doesn't pull the trigger. Mm. In a moment of sweet justice, I think, mm. the cowardice, the sniveliness of Corrigan is, is brought, <laughs> it's just brought out mm. where he just gets on his knees and is like, don't shoot me, please don't shoot me. Right. And she doesn't. Mm-hmm. It's all teed up that she will come in and go blam and take him out and get revenge. And then maybe there's a little part of me that kind of wants that to happen. You want to see Corrigan get some form of comeuppance. Mm. And his comeuppance is that he's weak. He's a coward. He's afraid when push comes to shove. And she leaves him to cry on the floor after holding his life in her hands. Yeah. Um, the worst thing about it is is that the well-placed lie that Corrigan did to get off from those initial questions by the MCU, it's too much for, for Rennie. Mm-hmm. She's lost her partner in the MCU, and she hands in her badge to, yeah. to Captain Sawyer, along with her revolver. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of interesting, and it kind of speaks all the way back to the issues with Harvey Bullock. Renee again, again, has kind of proved that she is a stronger character than the Harvey Bullock character. She never turned on the person that killed her partner. She never killed Corrigan. She stepped back and said, "I'm out of this. It's driving me into something that I don't want to be. The city city is too much. It's too corrupt. I can no can no longer be a police officer." Which is the opposite decision that. Uh, Harvey Bullock took. She got to that point before it's explained. She got that point before when Gordon was shot that she could have taken revenge for that at the time and she didn't do it. Again, she's proven yeah. that she she won't take that step. Uh, she steps on the edge yeah. and she doesn't step over that edge exactly. into something probably worse and um, more akin to what Gotham Central or how Gotham Central portrays Harvey Bullock. Um, she steps back and wants to retain her moral centre, mm. if for want of a better word. Um, and I think she does. Yeah. And she walks out with her head held high as issue 40 comes to an end. Yeah. And it's a really powerful ending to Gotham Central. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And the series itself was set up, and they talked about it. Brubaker and, and Rooker talked about that. You know, but it could be like a TV show that they would they would set it up. They do, um, they do arcs that we're dealing with one half of the MCU who did the day shift, who were very well known characters or relatively well known characters, and mm-hmm. then the night shift, which had different kind of characters, um, and it kind of yeah set it up, set the whole series up as a as a TV show overall. What the hell do you think they kind of fared with that? I think they achieved it really well, and I think it's really positive, really encouraging signs for Gotham 
that's going to obviously premiere on the 22nd of September. Mm. I think you can do procedural and serialized elements. That's what they've done here. Um, and I think it comes back again and again to the quality of the writing. I mean, for me, the best stories were those involving much larger story arcs. Mm. Maybe they were two, three, or four issues long, like Soft Targets, like Half-Life, especially like Corrigan Part 2 and Keystone Cops. I think because they're they're given time to breathe, they're allowed to, to expand, and you really get to understand motives, see development and character, um, of those members of the MCU. That I loved. I think the single-issue story arcs fared less well. Mm. I loved the one introducing Stacy, and I really um, enjoyed the one with Poison Ivy, Nature, and I think they were done really well. I think the problem with some of the single story arcs with Gotham Central as a whole was that they were linked to crossover events or tie-ins to crossover events, mm. And you kind of get the idea that they're shoehorned in a bit. Um, certainly, um, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, um, you know, you have all this mystical stuff going on, which doesn't quite work in the context of what they're dealing with in the character development of Christmas Allen. I think that works well, but not the tie-in part. There's almost that the context of it is missing, and it doesn't fit the context of Gotham Central and the issues before or the issues after. Yeah, I agree. Even talking about that issue, uh, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, I think there was a... I found it quite difficult even talking about the possession of René Montoya by an ex, extraterrestrial being, almost. It seems like a weird thing to talk about when you're talking about the series Gotham Central. It seems totally incongruous of, of the storytelling so far. Um, overall, for me, the, the series has been fantastic. I almost can feel... As I read through it, it almost felt like two full seasons of a show. There was a, a Christmas episode with the Joker, you know, yeah. the big the big moment. There's those there's those, you know, almost the sweep uh, times when you get all the characters together investigating a huge a huge moment. Um you get you get a whole cast of characters with all their own personalities. You get that the, the really good arcs of, of the story that end out a season of the show, that kind of stuff. Yeah. The one thing that I absolutely above everything else, the one thing I love is Corrigan Part 2 is an excellent storyline and features not even one reference to Batman, not one reference to his Batman villains. I didn't even notice it when I was reading through it at all. It's like as if it got to the end of the series and established what could have been a perfect series for another five or six years. Um, that great. concept of Gotham without the Batman, I think it's proven that it can work. Absolutely. Okay, Batman does appear occasionally in mm. these but for the most part, if not 98% of the time, he is absent from this world. Yeah. And it works. And um, I think you're also introduced to a host of really interesting characters. I think for, I speak for myself, but I think I also speak for, for Derek as well, in that of these members of the Major Crimes Unit in the police department, Rennie Montoya, Crispus Allen, their dynamic is really well handled by the writing and by the artwork and their interaction with the the two-face and with colleagues such as Corrigan you have Harvey Bullock there mm -hmm. and and the sort of interesting shades of gray that he brings and the complexities that he 
has with other members of the major crimes unit and within himself. And one of the things I really do hope is that the TV show Gotham will not only explore the villains and the origins of these villains that we all know and love, like the Penguin, and I can't wait for that. I really, really can't. But I think what Gotham Central has shown is that you can do that equally as well for members of the Gotham Police Department, not just Jim Gordon and Harvey Bullock, but maybe some of the other characters um, in there as well. It would be great if Corrigan was there, actually. But we still have the potential that we could see a Josie McDonald, a Marcus Driver. There's a lot of possibilities there. Yeah, I, I was going to say, though, if we saw Carrigan on, on uh, Gotham, on the TV show, it would just throw up a red flag to anybody, any of our listeners who've listened to all of our podcasts and anybody who's read these comics. Um, if you see Jimmy Corrigan appear on Gotham, you'll instantly go, oh, what's, when's he going to kill the character or when is he gonna yeah. when's he gonna turn on them he's the bad guy and um, so i like the idea that there could be another corrupt cop that we don't know just yet there could be another corrupt, corrupt cop in the show that could have the same path as cargan doesn't necessarily need to be him th- um, really good really good look for it. yeah i think at last for me as well is that it sh- does show that gotham will be able to use the villains that we know from batman films from batman comics and um, and involve them with the police department without the need of the Batman. Mm -hmm. And that is really good. And I think also, despite what's been said, that there is the possibility, whether they take it or not, is another matter entirely, but there is the possibility and potential for crossovers with the Flash, with Arrow, with Constantine, through the police departments or villains, or prisons within those other um, DC uh, cities and universes. Absolutely. After meeting Stacy, I think that Felicity from from Arrow could come over and work in their offices for a little while on the GCPD yeah. office. I'd love to see a Stacy <laughs> on um, on the show, for example. It would be great. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, that's our coverage of uh, of Gotham Central. It's been a been a long series, but really good fun. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been really good fun, and it's it's really interesting to know that cast members of Gotham. Um, were given these this whole series to look at, and um, I don't know whether the writers did. Certainly, we've heard that you know they're also going to create their own thing. Absolutely. But they have looked at this, and I think that's encouraging. I think that's bodes really well, and we're glad to have um, shared our thoughts on this series. Yeah, I suppose my kind of closing thought on this is: don't get me wrong. Anyway, uh, I do not want to see this specific set of graphic novels turned into the TV show Gotham. That's Absolutely. It's not, not what I want at no. all. I really enjoyed spending time with the characters and I'd love if they just took some of those characteristics into the show Gotham. Um, it's really If I've enjoyed it on the page, I know I'm going to enjoy it on, on the screen. It's the flavour and the tone to go with what they're creating would be amazing. It isn't to repeat it verbatim. I completely agree yeah. um, with Derek on that. But we hope you really enjoyed listening to our thoughts on some of these characters and some of these storylines. And I want to thank you definitely for listening to Gotham Central. And for everyone, Gotham's getting that little bit closer. um, We're coming into September now, and there's only a few more weeks left till the start. Yeah, absolutely. Um, If you want to send us any feedback on on Gotham Central, if, if you've been reading along with us or have been listening to our podcasts, 
and and, and hopefully you haven't uh, hopefully haven't ruined what is a brilliant story and I'd, I'd recommend anybody going down to the local comic book shop and picking it up but send in your feedback to us on gothamtvpodcast at gmail.com yeah um, you can follow us on Twitter on Facebook on Tumblr on Flickr all with the handles of Gotham TV Podcast mm-hmm. so just search um, through them and you should be able to find us if you want to leave any feedback or any reviews for us on any of those sites or indeed on iTunes or Stitcher, please feel free to do so. So you might be wondering what we're doing for our next episode, because uh, we haven't said yet. We can't. I'm wondering. <laughs> we can't actually tell you. We've got a couple of things, a couple of kind of... <laughs> it's a secret. There is a little secret episode that's coming up very soon uh, before the launch of Gotham in the US, um, which is about three weeks away as we record this. Um, so there'll be another episode definitely released before the launch of Gotham. Uh, and I think we might even have two uh, that are coming up, but they're both quite secret, but they're both quite cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hopefully you're going to like it as much as, as we're looking forward to it, I suppose. Uh, thanks, as always, for the feedback and thanks, as yeah. always, for getting in contact. Um, really good to hear from all of you and really good to, to know we've got listeners that are enjoying this and as excited about the show as, as we are. Definitely. Um, like, Thank you very much for listening and we can't wait to, to be back with our next few episodes. However dark and scary the world might be right now, there will be light. There will be light. Brooks. that Jim Gordon is ex-military. He's come from the army. It is the idea that he was actually born in Gotham. It's not... I know from Batman Year One, he is coming from Chicago. You don't get the sense of whether he was born and brought up in Gotham. We must have got that accent in in Butler Training School. (laughs) He must have got his British accent in Butler Training School then, obviously. (laughs) I what are you talking about? I'm talking about Jim Gordon. I'm not Alfred. <laughs> I want to know your source. And there becomes a real standoff between these two because for, for Lipman, for Lipman, <laughs> that superhero Lipman, yeah. <laughs> up, up, and uh, um, but there's a real standoff between Sawyer and Lipman. Um, because for Lippmann, it's a real point of principle. I can't give you my sources yeah. uh, at all. Mustard, peppercorn, um, sorry. <laughs> I can't get over Lippmann. As opposed to nose, man. Oh, it's okay. Um, Bernays sauce. For him, it's a real point of principle. Um, because he doesn't want to give away his sources. <laughs> oh no! For him, it's a real point of principle that he doesn't want to give away his sources or red wine juice. <laughs> I can't get over this. Um... <laughs> In the meantime, Robin actually turns up, doesn't he? He comes back from Bloodhaven and goes and meets our our friend Stacy. Yeah, the, uh, Stacy yeah. on top. On top of the roof, yeah. <laughs> Stacey or on Robin. Top. <laughs> With the the mighty mints man doing his stuff and 